Hello and welcome to Posting Up, the Washington Post NBA podcast. I'm your host, Tim Bontemps, National NBA Editor for the Washington Post. And I'm coming to you today with the first of six division preview podcasts to prepare for the upcoming NBA season. Beginning today with the Atlantic Division, we'll go one each Tuesday and Friday for the next three weeks, right up to the start of the regular season. Should give you a nice snapshot of what all 30 teams look like uh, and try to get you prepared for everything as, as we get started here for what should be a really, I think, really exciting and fun year in the league. Um, first up, though, Atlantic Division today. A lot of stuff happened this summer, right up, including this weekend. Carmelo Anthony got traded, so I had to redo actually that one with uh, with Jared Dubin. So, um, in order, we're going to have the Boston Celtics up first, go alphabetical order. Boston Celtics, uh, Jay King from MassLive.com will talk about them. Sarah Kustak from the Yes Network will be on to talk about the Nets. Uh, Jared will be on to talk about the Knicks. Jess Camerato from NBC Sports Philadelphia will be on to talk the Sixers, and Blake Murphy from the Raptors Republic in the Athletic Toronto. I'll be talking about the Toronto Raptors. I think you'll find them all entertaining and informative. Should be a fun listen. So uh, enough of me talking, though. Let's, uh, let's get started with this and get to Jack. All right, first up is my man Jay King from Mass Live. Uh, Jay, thanks for taking some time, man. I appreciate it. Um, let's just start with the the... I, what I think is an interesting question, though people might be surprised about it. Um, you know, the Celtics add Kyrie Irving, they add Jason Tatum, they add uh, Gordon Hayward. But given the the net out of everything that happened this summer, do do you think that they got um, do you think they got better or, or significantly better, or do you think they're roughly the same or in worse shape than they were a year ago? I think their ceiling is definitely better. I think you know, with with Kyrie Irving, Gordon Hayward, and Al Horford, you now have an extra star and. Obviously, I think in a lot of ways, Kyrie and Isaiah Thomas, it's kind of, it was kind of a lateral move. And then you lose Jay Crowder, but you get Gordon Hayward. Um, so I think their ceiling is a lot higher. I think there's a huge variance for what they'll do in the regular season, especially. I think with so many new faces, they only have four returners. And like Terry Rozier is the second long, longest tenured guy on the team. And he's barely played over two years, really, when you think about it. Like, so is Marcus it, Smart the longest tenured Celtic in the last year of his rookie deal? Yes. Yes, he is. That's so, incredible. It's crazy. And for a team to go from you know the Eastern Conference Finals, the, the youngest number one seed, I believe, ever, to then overhauling basically the entire team, it was just a crazy, crazy summer. Uh, so I do think the ceiling's higher. I think there's a chance Kyrie is an MVP candidate. Like I, I think in a different... Oof. That's a hot take. In a difference, in a difference, how hot is it? He averaged thirty-five points per thirty-six I mean, minutes I mean, when LeBron wasn't on the court. I mean, I, I mean, yeah, and they went like four and seventeen. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 agree, I haven't but, heard anybody let, say that. I'm, listen, I'm not saying you're. I'm not saying you're gonna. That's like, I'm not saying that's it's a hundred percent wrong. It's just I have not heard anybody say that. I just I I, think not, it's a hot I'm take. Not saying, I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm just <laughs> saying, like, that's within the realm of possibilities. It's also within the realm of possibilities that he remains, like, this fantastically talented isolation scorer who doesn't really lift up the rest of his teammates, and then the Celtics would have issues. Right. Uh, they're, they're relying on a lot of young guys. They're relying on Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, who I don't really know what, what those guys are going to provide, but since Jalen, since Jay Crowder got moved, you, you need more from those guys. And... I mean, there's just so so much uncertainty about the way they're going to play, how those young guys are going to play, how everything is going to mix together. Mm-hmm. That I think there, there's just huge variance for what happens, and I think so. That's why I think their their ceiling is, is definitely higher. But like, if, if they don't win as many games as they did last regular season, I won't be surprised if they don't reach the Eastern Conference Finals again. I won't 
won't it all be shocked? Like the Wizards, the Raptors, those guys are still good. And I don't think there was a big gap between them and the Celtics last season. And unless a lot of things go right for the Celtics this year, I, I still don't think there's a big gap between those teams. Yeah, I mean, this is a little this is a little off of the the, beat, the path I was going to go on, but uh, to me, I think the easiest bet uh, out there right now is under on the Celtics over under of fifty five. Um, I, I think long term, the Celtics have they've increased their window, and like you said, I think they've improved their ceiling, like with the hope that Kyrie can take some steps forward, and that guys like Brown and Tatum can take steps forward uh, over time. But I just don't see how this team is going to win more games than last year um, when not only do they have to work all these players in, but they're going to be younger, less experienced. And frankly, I mean, especially with Kyrie, um, I, I think they have some real potential injury issues. And look, the other thing that people haven't really talked about, they only have two bigs on the roster. And if anything yeah, happens to Al Horford, they're like, yeah, I mean, they you have a bunch of these combo guys. You can play small, but like, you can't play small for 82 games. I mean, that, that could really become an issue if they have any kind of injury issue for either him or Aaron Baines. Yeah, I'm with you. Like, an, an injury to Horford would be really, really tough to overcome. Then you're going to, like, Gershon Yabuselli right. as a lot of minutes, and who knows what the, the heck he'll bring. Like, Daniel right. Tice, guy rookie from Germany, uh, I, I think he's going to be, like, a solid Jonas Jarebko type of addition, but really, who knows? So there, there's so much uncertainty on this roster, it's, it's hard to tell what they'll do. Um, and then there's so much uncertainty in Cleveland, too, that the Eastern Conference, like, who knows, man? Who knows right now? Yeah, I, to me, I, 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 don't think it's a, I don't think it's a certainty at all that they're the top two teams in the East at the end of the regular season. Now, I, I, still, think that, um, I, I still think Cleveland's the overwhelming favorite to make the finals. But, um, but look, I could see the Cavs completely not carrying the regular season. And I think the Celtics are going to have issues. I mean, like you said, there's just a lot, there's a lot of stuff to figure out there. And, you know, like last year, Golden State had a ton of new pieces, but, you know, the main one of those new pieces was Kevin Durant, and they already had three All-NBA players, so they could make it work. Uh, I, you know, I think Boston's in a much different situation. So I, 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 for as good a coach as Brad Stevens is, and they undoubtedly added talent, I, I think that, you know, it is, it is going to be a, a much more difficult transition than I think a lot of people are expecting. Yeah, it's 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 going to be interesting. It's going to be a fascinating year. To me, Kyrie Irving is the most fascinating player in the NBA in the same way that, that Russell Westbrook was last season because you knew he was going to be different than he ever was with Kevin Durant alongside him. Yep. And you just, just wanted to see what was going to happen with him, what he was going to become. I think Kyrie Irving in a lot of ways is that. Like He, he, put, he put the target on his back oh, by yeah. asking out of, of Cleveland. He put... He's putting a lot of pressure on himself by saying he wants to be a complete point guard now. And he's in the situation to do it in Boston with Brad Stevens' system at where they, they love ball movement, they love player movement. They've always been great at those things. So if they're not this year, a lot of that is on Kyrie. So he's got a lot of pressure on himself. There, there's so much in play for the Celtics team right now. And I think they're going to be at least good to really good with a, a chance to be great if everything goes right. But again, like, there's just so many, so many new pieces, so many moving pieces, and so much that I have no idea how it's going to work out, including the, the fit with Kyrie and how much he can help other players get better, that, that there's just, just a lot going on in Boston. Yeah, no, totally. And I'll, I'll, when I say I think they're going to struggle, I just think it's more likely they win 45 games than 55 games. It's not that I think they're going to you know, be terrible or you know, win 35 games or something. I, I just think they've got 
uh, you know, a lot of questions they have to answer. And, and you, you touched on the one I wanted to get to next, which was, um, you know, we're recording this about a week before it's going to come out, um, before training camp starts. And, you know, earlier this week, Kyrie went on uh, first take with, you know, Stephen A and, and Max Kellerman. And, you know, I think you saw him, you know, struggling, I think, to really answer a lot of the questions that his move created. Um, and, and I, th- and, and kind of bristling having to talk about it. And I think, um, you know, I, I, I like how your, your comparison to Russell Westbrook fits with him from last year. I actually think it's a different guy. I think this year is Kyrie Irving is going to be like Kevin Durant last year where Ooh. Durant every day last year, it was basically a, 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 a referendum on Durant's decision on decision to go to Golden State. Right. And it, this is a different move because, the only way that one was going to end well for Durant was if he did what he did, which was dominate in the finals and win MVP and, and lead the Warriors to a title. But you know, nobody expects the, the Celtics to do that. But to me, this season is all about Kyrie Irving. It's because, you know, this is the season of Kyrie Irving. He's on the cover of 2K. He gets traded to the Celtics. Um, he's, like you said, he's, he's put, it, put it out there. He wants to be a complete point guard. Um, he, want, he took on this challenge of having his own team. I mean, he brought all of this on himself. And, and I'm curious, you know, how do you think, you know, him accepting kind of everything that comes with being the face of the franchise, including, you know, something I think that he wanted, which was to have his voice be heard in a way that it never was in Cleveland. Um, how do you think that's going to go? And do you think that could be something that potentially is an issue for the Celtics team? I've, I think another part of this is that he's, he's not just going to be compared to what he was in Cleveland and what he could have been in Cleveland. He's going to be compared to Isaiah Thomas, who was like the most media friendly. He was the well, Boston star well, in the way on, that... And let's be honest too. Kyrie is a more talented player than Isaiah Thomas. I think most people would agree with that. He's never had a year like Isaiah had last year. Yeah, yeah. And he'll have to be considerably better than he was last regular season to match what Isaiah did. And healthy like, too, which has always been an issue. Yeah, and but so he's going to be compared to Isaiah in a lot of ways. Like Isaiah, he always repped Boston. He he was out there recruiting. He was like like he loved everything that came with being a star in Boston, and he he loved it like very few people I think could. I don't know if Kyrie will love it like that. I I don't know. I don't know if he'll. I don't know if anyone would embrace the the fame and and those responsibilities like Isaiah Thomas did. But I, I do think for Kyrie, like, this is a chance for a, a totally fresh start. Like, right now, some people think, you know, whether it's fair or not, that, that he's tough to deal with. Uh, whether he's tough to deal with in the locker room, tough to deal with on the court. Like, he has a chance to change that. He has a chance to show people that he's not just the isolation scorer, that, that he can make guys better and create for others and, and be a part of this system, which, which is what he said he wants to do. But but now he has to do it, and right, so in a lot right. of ways, in a lot of ways, it's like it's like a crossroads for him, and not a crossroads really. But no, I think it is. I mean, I, I think you know, I I think he, it, I think like I said before, I think this is a defining season of his career. I really do because you know, like you, I think you're right. This is a, this is his chance, right? He wanted he wanted this stage, and he wanted the platform of having his own team, being the guy, and leading a team to wherever it can go, right? So, like, if this had happened a year from now, like, let's say LeBron left next summer and went to the Lakers or whatever, and then Kyrie said, you know what, I want out of here. I got a year left on my deal, get me out of here. I think it'd be a very different situation, right? Because people would see it as, okay, Kyrie left the Cavs, LeBron left, that ended, 
So everybody decided, hey, you know what? I'm not going to resign here. Get me out of here to somewhere where I'm going to stay. Um, I, I think then it will be looked at differently. This was Kyrie Irving actively chose to leave LeBron James. So and then he, if you and do then he that, got the perfect right, and then he goes to the rival of the Cavs. So if you do all that, like you've got to produce and you've got to win games and you've got to take a step forward as a player. You've got to embrace being a leader. Like it, all of this stuff is all going to come down on him. And if it doesn't work out, I mean, look. Boston isn't exactly uh, the easiest place to play, as you know, right? I mean, if this doesn't work out, it could get ugly. I mean, I just think, I really think it is a defining season for him. I'm, I just think he's fascinated. I, I think it's going it, to be a truly fascinating season. Totally fascinating. And, and I honestly believe Boston was, of all, all the places he could have gotten traded, it was a perfect place for him. Like, the, the system is there. Certainly from a, certainly from a talent and, and basketball standpoint, no question about it. Yeah, absolutely. The, the system is there. The coaching is there. Like, Isaiah Thomas who, like you said, isn't as talented as Kyrie, just had one of the greatest offensive seasons in Boston Celtics history. And and so it everything's there. The the foundation is there for Kyrie to take this and, and be great with it. Uh it's it's just a matter of of does he do it? And I think he'll be he'll be at least great. And I, I from his standpoint, he's he must have been so frustrated the last especially like last year. He he has to look at himself and think, I am the the best point guard in the NBA. I kill it every finals. I have huge, huge scoring outbursts. I have one of the greatest shots in NBA history to win in game seven. Yep. And, and I didn't even make an all NBA team last year. Yep. So, so like this is his chance to, to show people that, that he's more than what people thought he was. And he's, to me, he's the most fascinating guy in the NBA. For sure. I don't know. I don't know how close it is with anybody it's else not. at this point. It's not. This, it's like I said. I think last year was the year of Kevin Durant. Even though Westbrook became a story because of the triple-doubles and stuff, it, the, that last season will be remembered as the year Kevin Durant went to Golden State and won a title, right? And this year is going to be remembered for whatever Kyrie does, you know, barring some kind of catastrophic situation we, haven't, we don't know about yet. But, you know, in terms of on-the-court stuff, this, this is going to be the year of Kyrie Irving, for better or for worse. And – that it's going to make it really interesting for me to, to watch. And along those lines, one thing Kyrie is not known for is playing defense, as you said earlier. Um, <laughs> and I, I think that the, the defense for this team is going to be a really interesting thing to watch. Uh, the Celtics trade Avery Bradley. Um, they, they don't really have a shooting guard on the roster. Not the positions necessarily matter as much anymore, but they, they really don't have one. Um, they, they trade Jay Crowder, who's a, a very good, versatile defender uh, in the – um, in the Kyrie trade, um, they get back Kyrie, who isn't a great defender. Not that Isaiah Thomas was any good either. Um, so uh, you put all that together. Um, Gordon Hayward is a very good defender they brought in. Marcus Morris is fine. Um, but I-, I am really curious to hear what you think about uh, how this team is going to play defense because I, I think they could um, I think they could really struggle at that end uh, for as good a Bra- coach as Brad Stevens is um, to to make all these pieces come together and actually – um, actually play, you know, pretty solid D like, um, cause even last year they were, I want to say 12th. I'm looking it up right now. What did you five? Yeah. They were I believe 12th. 13th. Yeah. They were 12th or 13th in defense last year. Um, and I, and I think it's fair to say they probably got worse at that. End. Yeah. Or at least, they're, or at least they're, I, or it's hard to see them getting much better anyway. Yeah. And, and they're different. I, I think it'll help them to have, have more size on the wing. I think, you know, going from Avery Bradley to either Marcus Smart or Jalen Brown, or Gordon Hayward, whoever's there. Uh, I think Marcus Morris, his versatility helps. I think, like, but yeah, you're right. Like, Amir Johnson, was he was a helpful defender. 
and they lost Avery Bradley. Obviously, very good. Jay Crowder, who was a big piece both ways for what they did. It, and they're going to be relying, like I said, on Jalen Brown, who he has a lot of individual tools defensively. He wasn't a good defender as a rookie. He, he might be in year two, but mm-hmm. that's an unknown right now. They're going to rely on him to be a good defender. They're going to need him to guard a lot of really good players. So, yeah, their defense is kind of unknown. Like last year at this time, we thought, you and I thought at least, they were going to have top five defense even better, had the potential to be even better than top five. Yeah, I thought they had a chance to be the best defense in the league last year. Yeah, this year I'm I'm expecting more average, and and then the the offensive talent will – will help them win out but but they have tons of versatility like you think about their possible starting lineup if they go with like say Kyrie Marcus Smart Gordon Hayward Marcus Morris and Al Horford you can switch like four positions there so they, they have a ton of versatility they have a lot of interchangeable pieces uh they have I think I think Daniel Tice is a pretty good defender I think Sammy Ojale rookie could be a really good defender how many rookies are actually good defenders it it's not not usual that that happens, but and then again, like if Horford goes down, you're relying on all young guys, and there's a lot that could go wrong with the defense. I think they they could be pretty good. They have a lot of, lot of long and interchangeable guys, but but it's it. I don't think it has a potential to be an elite defense. That's for sure. Yeah, no, it 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 will be really interesting. And like you said, I mean, you you rattled off a lot of first and second year guys who have to be um, important players for them. And even if they do start a guy like Marcus Smart. That really hurts their spacing a lot, which uh, which Brad Stevens is a is a big proponent of. So um, you know, and Al Horford doesn't necessarily like to play center. He's going to have to play center all the time. Um, that could wear him down. I mean, there's just a lot of uh, there's a lot of stuff that they're going to have to to deal with, and it will be it will be really interesting. And, and kind of along those lines, um, you know, Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, the last two number three picks in the draft, uh, you know, both clearly are going to have uh, big responsibility loads this year. Um, how much, what do you think their, their responsibilities are going to be, uh, specifically for each of them? And, um, and how much do you think they'll be able to, to help right away? I, I think, I think Brown will have more responsibilities than he did as a rookie. I don't know exactly what form that will take. I, I, I certainly don't think he's the type of guy you run offense through at all, but I think especially defensively, he showed enough as a rookie that, and now Avery Bradley's gone. You, you might need to stick him on some of the better offensive players for, for better or worse. Like individually, he has every tool to be an awesome defender, like six, seven, two thirties, super strong, super powerful, super athletic. Uh, so I, I think they're going to rely a lot more on him defensively. Jason Tatum, his fit is, I think he's going to score the ball. I, I don't think anyone would argue he's going to score the ball from, from day one. The, the thing with Jason Tatum that, will limit how effective he is as a rookie. Can he fit into the offense? Can he stretch his game out to the three-point arc? Does he have to be an isolation scorer, or can he get it in the flow of the offense while other guys create for him? Because for the first time in his life, he's not going to be the guy, the number one option. Uh, so I, I'm interested to see what, what Tatum does. I, I don't think Brown will, will be a focal point at all, but he'll be one of those guys that, that they rely on a lot, and especially with Jay Crowder gone. Those two guys... They're they're far more important now than they were before that, that trade to to this year's team. Obviously, they were going to be important long term anyway. Right. But but those guys are now they're key because the the wing depth you had you lost a lot of it with Jay Crowder. You lost you know one of your most reliable players, the guy who who really made small lineups work for the last couple of years. So I, I'm also 
I'm interested to see whether Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum can play the four. Is Tatum strong enough to handle that? Can can Brown rebound well enough and and defend the rim or bigger guys well enough to do that? I I don't know. I I have doubts about it, but but we'll see because like right now, Marcus Morris is the only guy with experience really playing small ball four. I'd say. Um, I'm trying to think of another guy. Like, otherwise, it's like Daniel Tice, Semi Ojale, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum. Like they have a, I guess Gordon Hayward. He can certainly play small ball four, but like I don't, I don't know how how many guys they have to play that position and and guard bigger guys. And they're going to need it in the front court because, like you said, they just don't have a lot of bigs. So that that's another thing that could limit their their defensive effectiveness is they just don't have a lot of size they still don't have rebounding right although i do think being bigger in other positions especially on the wing will help out the rebounding we'll help so a little. There, there, there are a lot of questions there yeah and, and look again it just comes back to the same thing right like young guys in the nba usually struggle and they have a lot of young guys they got to play and you know it, it it just like i said it just it, they're going to be one of the most fascinating teams in the league i think by far for me. I'm, I'm really looking forward to watching a lot early in the season. I'm, I'm going to be at the season opener, Celtics Cavs, excited about that. And it, they're going to be, it, they're going to be, there's going to be a lot to watch. I mean, cause they're just going to be a really, they got a lot of questions. And, and the final one, which I, I think is, is, is going to be another interesting thing to watch is who, who do you think is going to start for them? And I'll, I'll say both at the start of the year and by the end of the year, if you think it'll change as some of these young guys get some more experience over the course of the season. Uh, I think, so I think Al Horford will start at the five. I think after what he did in the playoffs, when he really took advantage of Marcin Gortat, took advantage of Robin Lopez, offensively at least, like I, I think it's time to start him at the five. It's time to go smaller. They have more wing depth now. I think you'll see Marcus Morris at the four. That makes the most sense to me, assuming you know his, his trial ends up and he ends, he's you know ready to, to go at the start of the season. Um I, Gordon Hayward, obviously, he's in the starting lineup. Kyrie Irving, obviously, he's in the starting lineup. The biggest question mark to me is is shooting guard. I think it's Marcus Smart. I think it's like they've loved having Marcus Smart off the bench in the past because he changes games, because he can fill so many different roles, because he's so energetic. Um, but I, I just think he's the best player of of their options there. I, I don't think unless Jalen Brown takes takes a big jump. That that he's he's as good as Marcus Smart, and I think sometimes it's just as simple as this is you know the our our best player in that fifth option. So let's plug Marcus Smart in there and see what happens. Uh, he 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 lost some weight. People are t- saying a lot of good things about Marcus Smart this off season. So we'll see how that goes. But <laughs> you you know the hype you know the hype machine, man. Yes, he's got the preseason hype machine going. Well, and it's a big year for him, right? I mean, he he wants to get paid. I mean, this is a this is a contract hit for him. He's going to be a restricted free agent next summer, and as we've seen this summer, you know, with the the cap going down, it's hard for guys to get paid. And there's a lot of teams that have point guards. So, you know, if Marcus is going to get paid next summer the way he hopes to, he's got to have a big year. So, you know, it doesn't surprise me that he, there's you know there's good rumors about him. You would think if they're ever going to be, it'd be this summer. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that to me that shooting guard situation is really interesting because I know we've gotten past the position thing, but um, I still think there's some relevancy to it. And the Celtics have a strange team where they've got several combo guards. Cause I even, I almost call Kyrie Irving a combo guard too. Um, and then they've got a billion combo forwards and then they've got two centers and that's their whole team. 
Like it, it is, it's just kind of an odd, it's just kind of an odd roster and it adds to um, what I think is going to be a fascinating year for them to try to, uh, to try to figure out, um, try to figure out how, you know, for Brad Stevens, trying to figure out how he's going to use all these guys and, and, and exactly how they're going to play and how they're going to defend. I mean, it's, there's just, there's going to be a lot for you to watch. I think it should be, you know, from that standpoint, I think it will be really interesting. Yeah. Brad Stevens, he's got a lot of questions to figure out. And I, I know there are, there are 25 or more coaches in the league who are envious of what Brad Stevens has, the challenges in front of him. But from a standpoint of you have four guys back, you have a team that lost not just really good players in Isaiah Thomas, Jay Crowder, Avery Bradley, but guys who were crucial to the identity of the team on and off the court. Like that, They were always a team that, that took offense to everything and you, you know competed no matter what and, and loved when people counted them out, even, even looked for people counting them out when it didn't even exist. So now what type of mentality do they have? What type of, of team do they become? Like, are, are they just going to be a high-scoring team that, that kind of offends every once in a while? Are they going to – where does it, the toughness come from that, it, that they used to have? Where, where does there, – there are just a lot of questions about this team, the, the way it's, it's going to unfold. So – we keep saying it's fascinating, but it's fascinating, man. It's a fascinating. Yeah. It's going to be a fascinating season. They, it really will be. It really will be fun to watch. So, uh, with that, Jay, I'll let you. I'll let you get going. Thanks for the time. Before you go, though, um, give the people, uh, you know, where they can follow you and, and let them know anything you got coming up here the next couple of weeks as as we get underway. Read my stuff at masslive.com/celtics. Listen to my podcast, Locked On Celtics podcast. And yeah, that's about it. Follow me on Twitter <laughs> at by J King. You should definitely follow follow the kid. He's a good follow. And uh, I assume <laughs> I assume I'll be seeing you in Cleveland in a month. Yes, sir. Can't wait to see you there, my man. Yeah, it'll be fun. So th- thanks again for the time, man. Appreciate it. All right, my my pleasure, man. Take care. All right, Sarah, thanks for coming on. I appreciate you making some time for me in the middle of your media tour for your, your great new game as uh, the, the full-time color person for the Nets, which I'm, I'm thrilled about as my friend. So uh, are, you, uh, are you looking forward to the season getting started and have to stop talking about yourself? I can't wait. One, I want to stop talking about myself. Two, I'm honored. I can't believe it. Tim, thank you for having me on your podcast. This is this is a big deal in and of itself. I've I've been psyched. You're 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 a way bigger deal than me, especially now. So that's uh, that's it's it's. I'm happy to have you on. And and I, I'm and I, I'm glad you're you're going to be doing the Nets a lot more. Not only because I'll love listening to you and I, and even now that I'm far away from the team, but uh, it um I, I think it's going to be a fairly interesting season for the Nets, especially compared to what the last couple have been like and um I, I think a big part of that is you know the net the nets really kind of pushed their chips in this summer i thought by trading for d'angelo russell in the brooke lopez trade finally trading brooke uh after all these years of, of talking about it and you know here's a guy that was the second big in the draft just a couple of years ago and was the kind of talent that the nets didn't seem like they'd be able to get without you know having a, a their own draft pick for five years so well yeah, I mean, I, I was just met- curious what you thought of that deal and, and what you think of them really kind of pushing their chips in with him as their, you know, kind of the face of their team now. I loved it. I thought it was a creative move. And going back to what you said, we all know Brooke Lopez had been the face of the franchise and um, had done so many incredible things for the Nets. And just even to see his development last season and how much he grew, expanded his game, shooting the three. But for the Nets and for what they're trying to do, this this rebuild in putting 
a, a new team together and really trying to build the organization, as you know, it, it's a long process and it's not going to be a quick turnaround. And you look at a guy like Brooke Lopez, 29 years old, um, you know, the opportunity to get a player like D'Angelo Russell, who is only 21 as a point guard, the type of talent that he brings to the table. And, and Kenny Atkinson, when he first got hired as the Brooklyn Nets head coach, he was touted, of course, for his ability to develop guys. Tim, I'm telling you, seeing it firsthand, what he and his staff are able to do with players, the diligence they have, the grind of trying to make guys better. I am excited to see, one, what they're able to do in just continuing to develop Russell, but also just fitting him into the system they play at, how well he will fit into this up-tempo style, his ability to make so many other guys around him better. And I think for D'Angelo Russell, and, and I got a chance to sit down with him a few times so far, um, he seems just thrilled at, at a new opportunity, at a clean slate. He's got a chip on his shoulder. He'll be the first to say it. And, and so I think when you have a guy who his first two years in the league didn't go exactly as he probably had expected, now you got a guy who is a, a you know overall two pick. The Nets never would have thought they had a chance at getting right. that type of talent in. That changes the whole dynamic of what they can do and build around. No, I think that's true. And, and I, I think you hit on it well with, with Kenny and his system. It really feels like, you know, if you were, if there was a team that was going to acquire D'Angelo with his skill set, even if he does have some issues, you know, especially on defense, his knee has been a problem. Um, but, right. but, but if you look at the positives, you know, his game would seem to fit perfectly with the way that Kenny wants to play. And if there's any coach, like you said, that's uh, for a guy that's known for developing guys, and that's really been his hallmark, uh, it, it really seems like it couldn't be, from his standpoint, a better opportunity for him to kind of put his doubters to, to rest and have a fresh start with the Nets. Yeah, and hopefully in the way they play, the up-tempo style, I mean, I think often overlooked when we've talked to a lot of guys because they have spent so much time here in the offseason and the guys have been working out together playing. Every, you know, every player has said his passing skills are so underrated. I think you think of him so much as a playmaker and a scorer um, and how he could create his own shot and what he can do and get into the basket or shooting a three. But they said his passing is what has really opened up their eyes on how he can find guys. And I think that was something that was missing last season. I mean, considering how much time Jeremy Lin had missed, um, but he was the one of those guys that could create and could do a lot with the ball in finding teammates. We saw, you know, flashes of that out of Karis Levert. Of course, he didn't play until the second half of the season. But to add another piece that can do that for the team makes a major difference in what they can do offensively. No, it's, that's that's definitely true. And, and you mentioned Jeremy Lin, and that, that kind of leads to my second question, which is who are the Nets going to start? Because they have kind of a weird roster. They've got a ton of wings, a ton of guards. They've obviously got Jeremy <laughs> and D'Angelo, who are both you know nominally point guards. They're both are kind of combo guys. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, so what, what do you think the – the starting lineup is going to look like because it feels like the only one that I could say for certainty is going to start is probably, ironically, Timothy Moskov at center. And I feel like the other four spots, you know, even though Moskov was kind of a, a salary dump in that trade with with Russell, it feels like the other four spots all could go multiple directions depending on what the Nets decide they want to do. Absolutely, and I have no, you know, just from my opinion and just kind of looking at things and looking at the way the roster shakes out. Um, to your point, I think they could go a lot of different directions. I think you naturally would assume that you've got a Lynn Russell backcourt, whether, you know, whoever's actually starting a point and who's playing off the ball. I think that's a nice thing about Lynn and Russell is that both guys, of course, can play with the ball in their hands. Both guys can play off the ball. 
um, Jeremy Lin has pointed to his time playing in Charlotte with Kemba Walker and how they were able to have such great synergy in the backcourt mm-hmm. and kind of feed off of one another. Um, I think where it gets interesting is who, who's going to be your three and four. Um, Cause I do think Mozgov starts at center. I imagine the Nets will play small a lot this season. Um, but it, it's really, you know, you're, you're loaded between, you know, Karis Levert, who's said to have had just a monster of a summer um, improving and being in the gym and getting better, getting stronger, being healthy. Um, you know, will Rondé be your four? You know, he had finished the season starting at, at that four spot. Will that be Rondé Hollis Jefferson? You got a guy like Alan Crabb to step in. Uh, Damari Carroll. I mean, you got a lot of different pieces. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know who they pick because I think you're kind of mixing and matching with so many wings, maybe putting a guy in that power forward spot that may be, um, you know, a little out of position or a little smaller than you want, or, or you go with the way you finished off last season, you go Levert at the three, you know, Rhonda Hellas Jefferson at the four. Um, I think Kenny Atkinson has a lot of options, which is a good thing, but I also think that makes it more challenging because there's so many ones and twos that you could slot in that I think competition in training camp and in the preseason is, is really going to matter. I mean, oftentimes you talk about guys fighting for their spots, and I think that's not just a cliche in this preseason for the Nets. I think that's going to be very true. Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, you've got Lynn and Russell, right? You've got Laverde and Crab, who both are really probably more twos than threes. Who, right, you know, if you right. Start, if you start Russell and Lynn, then, then theoretically one of those guys is going to play the three the whole time. You've got Damari Carroll, who, you know, is, is more of a three than Really a more of a three, but are you going to play him? Right. Yeah. And it's the same with Rondé. And then you've got Trevor Booker at the four. I mean, it, there's a lot there. There are a lot of, uh, you know, they've got a lot of and, they've got a lot of especially guards. And it, it will be interesting to see how they balance that out over the rest of the roster. Well, and, that, and that's not to even mention. And again, you, you got a lot of different guys. I mean, Sean Kilpatrick, there's a lot of potential. I mean, a lot of guys bring different skill sets as well. You know, whether you're talking about you know, a guy better offensively, is he lacking defensively? Who do you need at certain times? I say a whitehead is a guy that I know the Nets have been very high on, but he, he's got to work to get minutes now. I mean, to think about how many minutes he got in his rookie year because of injury. And now this right. season coming in, they're so loaded, it, you know, in the backcourt. Um, even Spencer Dinwiddie had done well. Like there's a lot of guys who were getting a lot of time and probably thought, okay, I'm building and I'll get more time this year. And now it's just your backcourt is heavy and, and you got to figure out what guys can play at what position? Because to your point, like a Karis Levert and an Alan Crabb, they're more of two. It's it's not just about okay, offensively we could slot them into the three, but can they can they actually defend a three? What are you going to do with the other end? Whereby are they actually going to be able to guard some of those three players? So that's why I think it, it's going to be very fascinating to see how Kenny Atkinson kind of pieces together different players with with different lineups. Yeah, no, I, I think that's going to be one of the, the real fun things to watch about this Nets team is not only do I think they'll be pretty entertaining to watch just because they're going to play really fast, but they're also, they're, like you said, there are a lot of just different ways that can go, and it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out because it'll probably determine a lot of stuff. And part of that, I mean, you mentioned him a few times. You know, there are a lot of people around the league who like Levert a lot, and he's a guy that really fell to 20 mostly because he had multiple foot issues at Michigan. And, you know, I think if he'd been healthy, he probably would have gone higher and even probably come out a year sooner. Um 
you know, but between him and Jared Allen, those are the two guys along with Russell that probably the Nets are most intrigued about long term. And, and, you know, Levert's obviously farther along than Allen, I would say at this point, given Allen's a, a, a very young rookie. But um, what do you what do you think the expectations are for both of those guys this season in terms of their development and where they fit in terms of playing both now and in the future? I think Jared Allen, and it's interesting with Jared Allen because he didn't even play in summer league. So he's right. not, not only of you know he hasn't even played in summer league. Nineteen-year-old uh, kid. He obviously has a ton of upside. And to your point, you know he fell a little. I, I'm not sure the Nets expected him to fall and, and have position to grab him in the draft. I'm, I can say with pretty I, good I, certainty they were overjoyed <laughs> that he was there. Yes, to say the least. Yeah. Um, I think he's gonna. I think he's gonna be one of the guys spending a lot of time going back and forth in the D League, trying to get him minutes playing for the Long Island Nets. Um, of course, up with the big club, but also just trying to get him more experience. And I think he's a player that. Is got a lot of room to develop. I mean, between his wingspan, of course, he's known for his defense, rebounding, um, but I think there's a long way to go in how he can really expedite the learning curve of playing in the NBA, playing at this level. Um, I think he's going to be interesting to see because I think, you know, with a player like that, can he reach the potential that you kind of envision for him? And um, heard a lot of good things about him. Great kid. He's a character guy. So hopefully he'll really latch on to some of the players who will show him the ropes of what it takes to, to play in the NBA, get used to travel, get, you know, as you know, all the little things that mm-hmm. I think a lot of guys don't realize. Um, but I think he is a player that the Nets are very intrigued by and just hopeful to see how he progresses. I'm not sure if he's going to blow people away in his rookie year, right. um, but I do think if he, if he gets enough time to, to get minutes in the D league, get minutes, um, you know, a few minutes here and there in, you know, with the Brooklyn Nets, how can he develop as the season goes along? And it all goes back to with the Nets, their vision and their plan. He's he's a 19-year-old kid. So, right. you know, can he be a guy that steadily improves, gets some time this year, gives them some meaningful minutes, and then how can he develop, you know, next season, the following season? Um, because he does have the size and he does have the potential, I think, to play with the changing style of the NBA. And when it comes to Lavert, I mean, Lavert is – you could see it, and I'm sure you saw it last year. Once he came back, there, his his quickness, his vision, like he's a guy to me that he plays so well with the ball in his hands, and he also moves so well without the ball. And you know, he's he's only 23, so he's a player um, that he's got so much youth. He missed so much time at Michigan as well. So like we talk so much about him coming back, and oh, he missed the early part of last season. Well, he missed so much time in college as well. So he's a player. You hope that he stays healthy, of course, is number one. Um, But number two, when you talk to any Nets player, any Nets coach, without without question, they say he is one of the hardest working players we have ever seen. Um, And he will max out his potential. And he's just, you know, he's a guy who understands um, what it actually takes to be a great player. I think he wants to be that. And so I, I'm expecting him to be that X factor this season that makes a big leap and could, you know, be one of the factors in the net surprising people and, and maybe performing higher than expectations. Yeah, no, I, they definitely like him a lot. And like I said, I know there's other people around the league who like him a lot too. I mean, he, you know, in a league where there aren't enough wings, you know, if you've got a six, 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 seven guy that can shoot and handle the ball and is athletic enough to guard people, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty intriguing piece. And yeah, and, and you said that develop, like 
No, yeah, go ahead. and at the other end of the floor, no, I was just gonna say, like it, 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 it was little, like his anticipation, he got in passing lanes. Um, you know, he understood at times how to defend. I think he got better as the, you know, as the weeks progressed in, in understanding personnel. I think he is a guy that watches a lot of films. So the, the more he starts to learn, you know, how different players play, because he, he was defending, you know, some of the best players in the league. Like he was a guy that they would put on, you know, a handful of players that, uh, that he would be versatile enough to guard different spots and guard different, you know, positions. So I, I think there's a lot of upside for him. And I think, you know, for him, it's just more as with any player, but getting that type of game experience that he started to get at the end of last season. Yeah, there's no, there's no question about that. I mean, he's, like I said, he's one of the guys that you look at and you, along with him, with Russell and Allen, those are three guys that if, if they all work out the way the Nets hope to, those are three guys that can be the core of of the, the of the next Nets team. That's pretty good. Right. Which which right. is a, which you know the fact that none of those guys were there more than uh, a year ago is certainly you know a nice feather in the cap of Sean Marks and company if it if it works out that way. Um, but but along those lines, you know the Nets the Nets spent about fifty million dollars in cap space bringing in Alan Crabb, uh, Mozgov, and 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 Damari Carroll this summer um, in a variety of trades. And, you know, obviously they got a couple picks for Carroll. They got Russell with Mozgov. They wanted, they signed Crab last year uh, to the original offer sheet that he signed with the, uh, with the, with the trailblazers. So, um, you know, all those, all those guys were, were guys they had interested in for a variety of reasons. But, you know, when you look at $50 million in cap space going away um, to get those three guys, do you, do you think that they, that the Nets, you know, especially with the cap shrink, the cap, amount of cap space around the league shrinking, do you think that they use that cap space as effectively as it could have, or would you have liked one or more of those moves to have gone in a little different direction and maybe use it a little better? No, I liked it. I liked it because also I think, you know, you look at the Nets, we're under the cap. La- I mean, you think about how in some of these trades, for example, the Carroll or the Crab trade, it was right going to Portland. Like they got rid of, which was that the Nicholson? Yes. I don't have my, my yeah. notes, but so, yeah. so they got rid of that Andrew Nicholson contract so a, a lot of it was an exchange of bad contracts mm-hmm. um so they get rid of the andrew nicholson in the crab trade and to your point like crab is a guy that they wanted so despite the fact i mean they initially signed him to that offer sheet um and it looked even a little better on, on that second time coming around but that's a guy that they wanted and, and despite him being a lot of money for them that's exactly what the nets needed they shot you know, so many threes last season. That's part of the style they want to play. Um, you got some more guys like uh, D'Angelo Russell, Lynn back healthy that are going to make some plays and penetrate, get into the teeth of your defense. Well, you need some three point shooters. So I think, right. you know, with a guy like Crab, you know, second highest three point field goal percentage last year, like that's a guy you need. Like if you, if you want to keep making the moves in the style of play you want to play at, he's a guy that you need. I think Damari Carroll, they get a second round pickback with him. He, of course, He's a good chunk of money. I think he's got, what, three years left on his deal. Yep. Um, but they like the leadership ask, aspect they bring. They like the veteran experience. He's a guy that Kenny Atkinson is very familiar with, so he can help parlay to some of these younger guys and younger players because they have so many of them just the way. Like, to me, he's, one, a guy who can contribute and, and be hopefully impactful on the court and stay healthy. But two, they are about trying to build culture. And he's a guy who can help build culture. He's been with a team, you know, between Atlanta and Toronto, um, despite him not, you know, playing all that much for Toronto last year. Like, he's a guy who's been on winning teams, winning, you know, 50 plus games for the last three or four years. 
So you need players who are accustomed to winning. And so like that to me is a move that you like, and you like to make Mozgov. I think, you know, a part of that is you get a player and you get a talent, a lottery pick talent like D'Angelo Russell that you probably wouldn't have gotten otherwise. And you get a first round pick. And, and those are two things that I think you, you take the Mozgov contract, um, you know, if you have to, because that's, that's part of the uh, deal of what you're getting back. So no, I liked it. I liked it. And I also think, you know, at some point with the net, like they also, I think they've got six or seven or eight on vets minimum. So they've got a lot of other good contracts, Trevor Booker's contract. Um, it's in, you know, got an expiring contract with him. So I, I think they've positioned themselves well of at least improving talent, getting some guys that they need that fit into the culture and into the way they want to continue moving the organization forward. And I think they put themselves in, in pretty good position, you know, looking ahead to next season as well. No, that's definitely true. And, and it's, uh, you know, I, I thought the, the, the crab deal was not great. I, I understand, you know, the, the Nets, you know, made it clear that their logic was they, they swapped, like you said, they swapped out the Nicholson contracts. So really only was like a $13 million deal, but to me, that's $13 million that they could have spent somewhere else. And um, I, I didn't, I thought of all the contracts they signed last summer, I didn't really like that one at all. I thought they got lucky when Portland matched it. Um, so I, I think that one I maybe would have uh, passed on. But but even still, you know, like you said, the, the Carroll deal I thought was great. They, he's got two years left on his deal. They get two picks for him, you know, one first round pick and one pretty much guaranteed to be in the 32nd round pick, which should be a good, good, good move for them. And right. you, and you can't really argue with getting Moskov for Carroll or for, with Russell, especially with the way he fits um, in their system. And I think Moskov can actually be okay for them this season. I don't think he'll be a world beater, but I, I think he's got a chance to get back to where he was maybe a couple years ago in Cleveland, which if he does that, at least, at least he's in a, uh, he's in a, he's in a better place than where he seemed last year with the Lakers, where he looked like he was basically going to be dead salary. Right. And, and he's, he's a player. I mean, and they're also, they're thin at that center position. They, they just signed Tyler Zeller. Um, but Jarrett Allen, we talked about him taking a little while to come around. I'm sure you're going to see Trevor Booker and Quincy AC playing some five when they go small, but there's not, it's not like they have a ton of big men. So I think, you know, Mozgov will, will be a guy who at least, you know, can give you a good 20 minutes a game and be a, a pretty serviceable center. Yep, no question. So final thing, uh, the Nets, uh, a lot of people around the Nets are talking playoffs, uh, really going back to the summer. Jeremy Lin has said that. Other guys have said that. Um, do you that, that probably seems a little optimistic, even in a, a weak Eastern Conference, for a team that was the worst team in the league last year. And while it, it did add a lot of pieces, it did lose Brook Lopez, who was their best player last year um, in, that, in that D'Angelo Russell trade. So uh, what, do you, what do you think the, the realistic – um, ceiling is for this team and, and, and how realistic are, is this talk of, of playoffs from these guys? I think that is, in my opinion, a tough question to, and, and probably you could say this about any team, um, because I think a lot of these guys, health plays a major component. I think it's, you look at a lot of guys and it, are they going to make a jump? I mean, we, we already mentioned a handful of players. Is, is Russell going to make that jump? Is he going to be uh, a more elite point guard and play and maximize some of his talents that he has the potential to that maybe wasn't seen exactly with the Lakers? Is Levert going to make that jump? How, you know, will they find a rhythm with the roster and the combination and what players are, are going to improve after getting some quality minutes last year. Um, I, I think it's realistic. I, I don't know. 
Um, I talked to, you know, as I mentioned, sat down a handful of these players and Jeremy Lin was one guy and, and all the players across the board said it, but Jeremy Lin, you know, he kind of put in perspective of a sense of like, we, last year we talked a lot about incrementally improving and coming and being better and creating a culture and doing those type of things. Um, he said, but we need to talk about real goals. And he said, if you're not talking about making the playoffs, then why are you showing up every day? You know, why are you going to be here? So I right. think, you know, for them, it's like the Eastern Conference is weakened. And if we're being honest, you look at a handful of those, t- you know, past the top, what, five, would you say? Things are pretty, you know, I wouldn't say wide open, but th- there's a lot of room where if teams make a jump and, you know, have some good stretches during the season that y- you could find your way into that eighth spot. So um, I-, I think it's realistic. I do think it's realistic. I, I don't know, you know, if everything falls right, if guys stay healthy, if they build chemistry, if it will happen. But but I do think it's a real possibility, given the fact that, they have improved their talent and they have a lot of players um, who have some chips on their shoulder. You know, even though that seems cliche ish, there's a lot of guys who have something that they want to prove. And I think that goes, goes a long way in an NBA season in an Eastern conference where the, the bottom half definitely is as weak as we've seen it in quite some time. Yeah. I mean, the way, the way I look at it is that you've got, the Cavs and Celtics, you've got the Heat and Rap, or the, the Wizards and Raptors, you've got the Bucks, and then you've probably got the Heat, Hornets, and Pistons, or probably your eight playoff teams. But, yeah. but I think you but, know, the, the, Sixers, the Sixers are obviously a team that could make some moves either way. Um, but, you know, a lot of these teams after that, the Knicks, the Sixers, the Pacers, uh, the Magic, the Hawks, the Bulls, I mean, I, you can make, I think, a credible argument the Nets could finish better than all of them. And at that point, you're in ninth if that happens, and you only need one of those other teams to have some injuries or something happen, and then you could squeak into the eighth spot. So I think it, I would say it's probably unrealistic for them to make the playoffs, even still. But I, I don't think it's I don't think it's impossible. And I think, like you said, if if things break the right way, it does look like there is at least a path that if everything breaks right, maybe they could somewhere get somewhere into the mid 30s and wins, maybe a little bit higher, and squeak into an eight seed if if it all goes right. Yeah, and and you never know with with their own team you never know with different teams and you know I think for the Nets and I know you know we'll see how things shake out with um you know what happens with rules but it, it, they've got no reason to tank like there's no reason for that it, yeah it they don't have benefit. their pick and all those other teams do have their pick so yeah that's reason and so yeah there's you know how that is you know for them it's it's not like there's any motive for them losing there there's no there's nothing good that comes out of that so um so that's i think a, another aspect to it of you got a group of guys that their only motivation is to win so i, I think that you know ch- changes the narrative a little bit yeah no question no question about it so um, all right. Well, thanks. Thanks, pal, for doing this. I appreciate it. And like I said before, I'm, I'm really excited about your, uh, your new gig. I'm, I'm excited for more people to, to see how smart you are about basketball. So, so thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. And let people know where they can, where they can find you and what you're going to be doing this year. Cause I assume, are, are you still doing some other stuff besides the nets or is this now? I am still, no, 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 still doing, I'll still be doing some, uh, women's college basketball on Fox sports. And so I'll still be calling a lot of, uh, women's big East games, and uh, during the tournaments and Big 12 uh, Big East uh, studio analyst stuff for um, for those tournaments. So, yeah, so a little bit of a mix of everything. 
No, the Brooklyn Nets, Brooklyn Nets at the forefront. We miss you. We miss you. <laughs> we're so we're so proud of you, and we're glad you're killing it uh, with with the post. But um, we we do we do miss you out here. Well, I miss seeing you all the time too. But like I said, I'm I'm really pumped for for the new gig. It's well deserved, and you're going to kill it. So thanks uh, thanks for coming on. And I'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Tim. If you enjoyed this podcast and are interested in learning more about the NBA, you can get my weekly NBA newsletter, the Monday Morning Post-Up, delivered right to your inbox every Monday morning at 8 a.m. To do so, please go to wapo.st slash postupnewsletter to subscribe. You'll get an original column from me, links to my work from the past week, links to work from both my colleagues at the Washington Post and other writers from around the web about the league, a viewing guide for the week ahead, and some dining and pop culture recommendations. Again, to subscribe to the Monday Morning Post-Up, please go to wapo.st slash post-up newsletter and start your week off right with everything you need to know about the NBA. All right, Jared, thanks for doing this. Uh, We already recorded one of these last week uh, in preparation for this one, and then all of a sudden, uh, Carmelo Anthony gets traded on Saturday, and we got to redo it, so... Uh, we're now doing this on media day. So thanks for, uh, thanks for doing a, a refresher on this. I guess let's just start with the, um, with the, with obviously the, the, the biggest story here. What, what did you think of, of the Knicks finally, uh, moving on for Carmelo? And is this about as good as they were going to do in a package, uh, given the constraints they were under to try to trade? Well, that's something that we talked about on the original incarnation of this podcast was that, there was really no good deal out there that they were going to get. You know, like th- this was never a situation where they were like going to get better on the court or they were going to get some great future assets. It was always going to have to be a situation where they sort of minimized the damage and didn't make a second version of the Ewing trade. Right. Um, right. You know, I do think that it'll lift not necessarily like a, a karmic burden off the franchise, but like a psychic burden off the franchise. You know, they've been beholden to Carmelo and viewed everything through the prism of Carmelo and his career for so long. And now obviously that's no longer the case. It's going to allow them to view all of their decision-making and all of their franchise identity through the prism of Chris Porzingis. And I think that that is a good thing for them because it's something that they have needed to do for a couple of years and sort of just didn't want to admit it to themselves, I guess I would say. Right. And um, I think it's a good now point. it's unquestioned that that's what's going to be the case. And, you know, as long as they didn't take back a bunch of horrible contracts, I think there wasn't necessarily going to be a huge loss or a huge win with whatever deal they made. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think this. I think the trade they made was just about as good as they possibly could have done. Um, I mean, it, they didn't get a first-round pick. I don't think they were ever realistically going to get one. But this Bulls second rounder they're getting is basically going to be a first rounder. I mean, it's going to be somewhere from thirty-one to thirty-five uh, in the second round, which is a very good pick. You can actually really, um, you know, lock in a player at a cheaper rate there. I mean, it's it's a that's not a bad pick to get. Um, you know, and then they get Doug McDermott, who expires after this year, and if they decide they like him, maybe they sign him on a cheap, resign him to a pretty cheap deal, and uh, and Ennis Kanter will be productive for them, and maybe they could turn him into something. You know, f- maybe flip him for a Yamahimi type with a pick coming back at the deadline and get something else for him, right? So, I I think that I think they did about as well as they could, and I 
I think Carmelo Anthony deserves some credit for being willing to waive his no-trade clause to at least a couple more teams besides Houston because I, I talked to some people this weekend around the league who kind of thought that the way this was going to play out was that Carmelo would just not waive, would just say, I'm going to Houston or I'm coming here. And it would be so awkward and messy that the Knicks would just wind up just doing the deal with Houston anyway and taking back, say, the Ryan Anderson contract that we have talked about that's, you know, three years left with $20 million a year um, and, and clog up their books even further. So uh, I do think he gets some credit for saying, you know what, I'll go to a couple other places too and getting himself to a, a, a situation where I think the Thunder are the second-best team in the West right now, assuming everybody's healthy. And, uh, and, it, and it allowed the Knicks to at least, like you said, make a deal that didn't actively hurt them and actually got them you know, a piece or two that may be able to help a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with that you know, to a certain extent, obviously. I, that's obviously setting aside a lot of the stuff that led up to this you know, from the Knicks' side. That, Like you said, there was – but they've backed themselves into such a corner through a variety of degrees that they, they weren't, there wasn't really going to be a good outcome. It was just trying to avoid a, a bad, a very bad one. Right. And, you know, the whole idea of a no-trade clause is that if you are going to get traded, you can choose your destination. Right. That is what happens when you right. give a guy a no-trade clause. Like, there's no, to me, fault on Carmelo for limiting his destinations to only a few choice places. Like, that's why you negotiate for a no-trade clause sure. in the first place. And, you know, it was totally his prerogative to choose where he wanted to land. And, you know, I think it is, you know, a bit to his credit that he did open that up beyond the one place that he really wanted to go at the end. Because I think in the end, he really just wanted to just get the hell out of here. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> not that I can blame him in really any way for that. I right. think it makes a, a lot of sense, you know, if you're in his situation to just want to be gone. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that I have more to say about his, like decision-making process within the actual trade right um you know i don't think it's necessarily a good trade for the knicks like i don't know that there was a way that they could have made a good trade but i think they did do a decent job of minimizing the damage that would have come out of it you know they saved somewhere between you know depending on whether or not ns Cantor opts out and then leaves they saved like either you know 13 and a half million dollars or 32 million dollars in salary and picked up a pick in like you said probably the 31 to 35 range right probably the best second round pick that you could have acquired this year yeah and i don't think think it was realistic to get a first round pick at all so you know i think they did fine they didn't do great they didn't do horribly and um i think he did well for himself to get himself to a place that you know i don't think it's necessarily a championship contender because even with carmelo i still don't think this really nudges them all that much closer to the Warriors, even if they are uh, better equipped than you know all but one or two teams to compete with that team, they're still not really all that close. But he did at least get himself to a team that's going to be in the mix and could be a strong contender for the Western Conference Finals. Yeah, and, and look, like you said, I mean, in a normal year they would be a championship contender, but we're not in a normal, you know, like we're not in normal times for a variety of reasons at the moment. We're definitely not in normal times in the NBA because even in a league where. Uh, parody doesn't has never reigned. Uh, you know the Warriors are you know such a dominant favorite that that's not even a, a normal circumstance. But let let's let's move on to to the Knicks themselves. So you know Carmelo obviously is out the door um, now. The focus of everything, as you said before, is rightly on Chris Porzingis. Um, what will you be looking for this season from him, just in terms of how he handles the responsibility of being a franchise guy? Because I, I think. 
an underrated part of Carmelo's presence there the last couple of years was that Chris Tabbs didn't have to do everything. And it was kind of given the opportunity to, you know, grow into being an NBA player, grow into being in New York. And Carmelo, you know, one thing that Carmelo, I don't think ever got enough credit for was just taking all the, the brunt of the media attention and, you know, being the voice of the team and sticking up for his guys and, you know, just being there every day and talking to the media and, and not having Chris Tapps come in as a rookie and have to take that right on right away, which could have maybe overwhelmed a lot of guys. So um, just, you know, for beyond the basketball stuff, you know, which I'd like to hear your thoughts on what you look for from, you're going to look for from him as a number one option. Just kind of what are you looking for in general as he accepts this mantle of being the, the face of the franchise officially? It's going to be interesting to watch, you know, how his relationship with uh, both the media and the fans evolves throughout this season and obviously in the future as well, because he's been sort of like a media darling as, you know, the guy that's the clear future of the franchise, but also not necessarily the one that is the face of the franchise just yet. Like it's been established that he's going to be that guy, but he hasn't really been it yet because he couldn't help but not be it while Carmelo was here. Like Carmelo was still very clearly, um, even if he wasn't necessarily the center of the team's plans as recently as last year, uh, he was still the guy that was the face of the franchise. Now it's very much Chris Stapps. He's going to be the guy that, you know, even though he had, you know, a million guys waiting for him after the game for every post-game interview session, you know, if Carmelo walked in in the middle of Chris Stapps media availability, there would be five, six, seven, eight guys that left Chris Stapps and went to go talk to Carmelo because Carmelo was the guy. That's not going to happen this year. Everybody's going to be there waiting for Chris Stapps. Everybody's going to stay and hang on his every word. Carmelo, you know, we, we've talked about it before on, on other podcasts and our writing on Twitter. Like Carmelo did as good of a job handling and talking to the New York media once he got out of his post-game massage, uh, as anybody that I've ever seen. You know, that that yes. dude would take 45 minutes to come into the locker room to talk. But once he did get there... He answered every question was, you know, one of the most personable and likable guys that I've ever dealt with, uh, not just on the Knicks, but in the whole league. He would answer questions until the Knicks PR kicked him out of the locker room. And even on his way out the door would still answer more if people had them. He would like ask you questions about the stuff that you asked him if he if he thought one of your questions was interesting. Um, you know, now all that kind of attention is going to be on Chris Stapps. He's done a good job handling that so far in his career like i don't think he's had any missteps he's been very personable he knows how to deal with people he'll like make jokes about questions that berman asks him or something like that just like everybody else in the <laughs> right, team right um so I, I don't think that he's gonna have necessarily an issue dealing with it but i do think he's gonna get different kinds of questioning now that he's you know the unquestioned face of the franchise and the centerpiece of everything that they're doing and he's also gonna get different fan attention you know before it was like oh carmelo is holding Chris Stapps back. We need to just get the Chris Stapps era on with already. Now it is, you know, definitively the Chris Stapps era. And I think if they don't show improvement or if he doesn't show improvement or if they're like the worst team in the league, there are going to be some questions. You know, I think there people need to understand that they are going to be bad this year, no matter how good he is. That's right. just the way it's going to be. Right. Um, I don't necessarily know that people, excuse me, will understand that because that's just <laughs> the way things are here. <laughs> right. But, you know, the, the attention that comes with being that, that centerpiece guy is going to be a little bit different, and I'm certainly going to be interested to see how he reacts to it. Yeah, I, I, think, he'll be, I think he'll be good with it. I mean, Chris Haps, from the day he got there, has been um, a guy far beyond his years in terms of maturity, and, and I think you've seen that and kind of the way he's conducted himself. And I, I think, 
you know, he's the fact that he's got that relationship now with the media there, and, and, and look, nobody expects the Knicks to be good. That's the other thing. It's not like some of these dumpster fire Knicks teams in the past where uh, they, people thought, you know, irrationally they were going to be good, and then they were not, and then that would lead to issues. Um, mm-hmm. they're, they're going to be awful, and everyone knows that. So I, I think that will help, too. Um, from, a, from an on-the-court standpoint, um, you know, what, what will you be looking for from that that perspective because he is going to be the number one option now fully and you know it, what what do you think that will um what what do you think that will entail for his game and what are you looking for him to try to improve upon yeah i think i'm largely looking for the same things i was looking for last year you know i want to see more of him being able to create his own shot i think that's really important obviously when you're a number one option and especially when you're a number one option on a team with one of you know, for this season at least, one of the worst point guard situations in the league. He's not going to necessarily have guys creating a bunch of easy looks for him, so he's going to have to figure out how to do it on his own. Um, so I think that's that's definitely going to be one thing that I'm looking for. You know, in addition to that, I think being able to defend better in space that was something he got a little bit exposed in last season. You know, his his rim protection was really good. Still, again, one of the best rim protectors in the league among the top five or ten or so. But he really needs to be able to guard in space better in order to, you know, play the four, which is where he's going to spend a lot of his time right now because the Knicks have 17 centers. <laughs> and he also needs to do it if he's going to play center in, in closing lineups because you got to be able to corral ball handlers on the perimeter and pick and rolls and things like that. So those two things for sure. And then... You know, we keep saying he's going to be this elite shooter. He needs to finally take that big step forward with his outside shooting. You know, he was at, I think, 33% in his rookie year, got up to, I believe, 35 or 36% last year. He needs to get up into the high 30s, close to 40% on his threes, because at a certain point, it doesn't matter how pretty your shot looks, how repeatable your stroke is, you got to actually put the ball in there. And he started off really well last season, then got, you know, thrown off a little bit by that Achilles injury in December and never really found his footing shooting wise for the rest of the season. I'd like to see that extend throughout the whole year. Yeah. I, that's the thing I'm, I'm really looking forward to too, to, to see, see if he can get that percentage up and, 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 and also just see how he can take on the mantle of being the number one option and, and having defense and throw stuff at him every night. I mean, that, that's a good, that's a good thing to have to, to see. And I also want to see how he's just going to handle the rigors of his season. We've seen him kind of, wear down over the second half of each of his first two years in the league. And I'll be curious to see. looks like he's gotten stronger, you know, as you'd expect. He looked really good in Eurobasket. And I'll be curious to see if he can kind of carry that through all the way to April this time instead of kind of starting to um, to slide down a little bit as the year goes along. Yeah. I mean, look, that's something that has happened both of his seasons now where he started off really hot and then kind of fizzled out in the second half of the year and gotten injured in the second half of the year, which right. is not something that you necessarily want to see from a guy like that either. So we're definitely going to have to see something give uh, on that front, and hopefully he can stay healthy throughout the season. Right. Now you, now you mentioned uh, all the bigs that the, that the Knicks have. Um, what, what do you think is going to be the way this team plays this year? I mean, we, you know, we saw Jeff Hornacek employ, employ a, you know, kind of a traditional, but traditional by NBA standards, kind of pick-and-roll offense uh, in, in Phoenix when he was the coach of the Suns. We thought it was a perfect fit for Porzingis to kind of settle into the role that Channing Fry had there. Um, you know, do you do you expect 
to see more of that this year. Now yes. that now these okay, well there you go. Uh, <laughs> now that he's freed from the shackles of the triangle, or do you think um, because of the way the roster is built and the fact that you know we're going to get to the point guard situation in a minute? Between the fact the Knicks don't really have a, a credible point guard option and the fact that they've got eight million bigs on the team, do they not necessarily go quite as far from the triangle to uh, what? Pornasek did in Phoenix as maybe people think simply because they don't necessarily have the horses to do so. I don't mean they're going to run the triangle this year, but that it is more of a kind of maybe more traditional from when Hornacek was playing kind of offense than traditional from, uh, you know, the, where the league is at at this point. Yeah. I don't know if we'll necessarily see, you know, the pure version of what he ran in Phoenix um, just because it's not, feasible you know they had a very guard oriented team there and this team has like three guards on the whole roster so you can't necessarily run the same kind of stuff Mm -hmm. um but i don't think you're gonna see them doing any really triangle stuff apart from the fact that every single offense in the league has you know some elements of triangle sets within it just in terms of spacing and you know backdoor cuts and um, you know, various different things that come without that and guys catching the ball at the elbow, things like that. Um, I, I think that we'll see that because it's in every offense, but I don't think it's going to be a situation where they come out and they're running triangle out of sideline, out of bounds and stuff like that. Like, I think that that is dead and gone for good. Um, right. I and think and so not too. a moment too soon. No, I, th- I think so too. Um, let's, let's wrap up though with, uh, with the point guard situation, you know, the rest of the roster, I mean, you know, Ennis Kanter is probably going to play a bunch of minutes at the center, you know, that, you know, a lot, that, a lot of that stuff doesn't necessarily matter, but, um, you know, Frank Nilakina was the Knicks, uh, Knicks first round pick at eighth overall. Uh, he's a young guy. He's pretty raw. Um, do you, do you think that the Knicks, uh, will, will kind of give him every chance to be the starting point guard and just truly commit to being, you know, just playing these young guys and dealing with it? Or do you think that, you know, they play a Ron Baker or Ramon Sessions instead and maybe, uh, you know, maybe bring Frank along a little more slowly? I don't know if you know about this, but but Ron Baker is part of the young core. And <laughs> and that's why they gave him a one-year deal with a player option because he's clearly part of the, the future. One of the more interesting moves of the summer. Uh, um so, yeah, look, um, I think some of it is going to depend on what they see out of Frank in training camp in these next coming weeks. Like, if he's really playing well and clearly a better player than Sessions and Baker and Jared Jack, then, yeah, give him the point guard job and let him run with it. Let him and Chris Stapps and Hernan Gomez and Hardaway develop some chemistry together and see what they can do. Right. But if he's getting dominated by these guys in training camp, then that means he's just clearly not ready to play against real NBA level talent just yet, and you got to bring him along slower. Um, you know, it it hurts. I think that they didn't see him at all in summer league. You know, right. you don't want to put too much weight on a player's performance in summer league. But I think if he had come out and played really well, they would feel a lot more confident about just giving him the job and saying, "All right, kid, let's see what you could do." Right. Um, or if they had he had come out and played not very well, then they would know more clearly, like well, we don't know what we should do about this yet. Maybe let's bring them along slowly. Right. But now, really, they only have a couple of weeks to figure out what they're going to do there. It's not like they have some clear option that is definitively better than him. Like, we're working with, you know, Jared Jack was out of the league last year coming off uh, serious injury. Ramon Sessions coming off serious injury. Ron Baker is like the Knicks are the, apparently 
the only team that thinks that, that he is a, <laughs> a, an above average NBA player. Right. Um, so there's an opportunity there for him to win it. And certainly I think it would be great for them if he did, but you got to do what you think is best for not just his development, but for the team's development in now and in the future. And I think that it's a decision that's not necessarily made already, but will be made over the course of the next few weeks. Yeah, no, I think that, uh, I, I think that you're very right about that. And I, I do think, you know, I do think, especially, I mean, look, the Knicks, the Knicks seem to have finally, for the first time in a long time, realized they need to just be bad and are, are just willing to accept that. And so right. because of that... Scott Perry, I think, said during that press conference last week, when they lied to all of us about Carmelo being on the team on Monday, no, um, <laughs> he was like, somebody asked him about the playoffs, and he was like, you know, we're going to try really hard and we'll live with the results. Yeah, which, I, and that, that's the most realistic thing that's been said on this front in a very long time in New York. Yeah. And, I, and I, think, I think because of that, I think to your point, I think that if there's any, if, if there's any chance that they can... Uh, if there's any chance that they can have, um, that they can they can kind of ease this along and have uh, Neil Keen to play and play a lot, um, you know, I, I think that they're going to do that. And I, I, I should say, I, I meant to, uh, uh, I, I said that that was the last thing. The, the last thing I should ask you about is Tim Hardaway. Now, we're, we're going to set aside our thoughts on his contract. Uh, we both feel the same way about it. However, now he's here. He's on a team with really no other wing scorers at all. Um, you know what? You know what? What are you curious to see from him uh, this season? He's obviously going to get a big role uh, with the Knicks. He's going to get all the shots that he, he can want. He probably is going to get to create, have the ball in his hands and create some. We just talked about their point guard situation isn't great. Um, you know the Knicks clearly bet on him, thinking he's going to be an average or better player. I think he is now, um, regardless of whether we agree with that assessment or not. Uh, what what will you be seeing? Seeing, looking to see from him this year in terms of trying to uh, to live up to the expectations they put on. Just so we're clear, you're talking. We both think it's a great contract <laughs> and one of the best of the offseason, right? Yes, that's exactly yeah. what. That's exactly what. Uh, uh, that's exactly what we're saying. No, I think that you know in that press conference Steve Mills did earlier in the summer, he mentioned that they gave Hardaway as much money as they did because that's what starting shooting guards get paid. Um, you can quibble with that in several ways. You know, the idea that he is a starting shooting guard, the idea <laughs> right. that what starting shooting guards uh, got paid in the summer of 2016 should have any bearing on what they got paid in the summer of 2017. Um, you know, whether or not they actually needed a starting shooting guard because they pretty much already had one. Right. Um, there's there's a bunch of different things you can quibble with that, but that's apparently what they view him as, which means that they're expecting above-average play on both ends of the floor. Um, I don't necessarily know that I expect that. I would say I definitively <laughs> do not expect that. <laughs> right. Um, you know, one of the things that made him a passable defender in Atlanta, and let's not you know pretend that he got anywhere above passable, like this idea that he was somehow average or right. better than that right. is wildly off base. Um, one of the things that made him passable was the fact that Mike Budenholzer just wasn't going to play him if he wasn't a passable defender. That is very clearly not true in New York now. They didn't pay him $71 million for him to not play. Like he is going to play and play a lot and he's going to have a big role. And, you know, I will be interested to see, I guess, 
how big the defensive drop off is because there's gonna be a drop off. Like, let's be honest here. Right. And um, does he go back to being you know totally unplayable and they just have to play him because they gave him all that money and they don't have anybody else? Is he merely below average like he was before? Um, that's going to be interesting to me. And then you know whether. Like they, I think they paid him to be like a number two perimeter option. Now he's got to be the number one perimeter option. Um, he's going to be the guy that opposing defenses put their best perimeter defender on every night. And I don't think he's ready for that on a night-to-night basis. I don't right. think it's going to go well at all. Right. So it'll be interesting to see how he gets his offense because he's never had to deal with being – the top perimeter option on the team before he's been like number three at best. Yeah. I mean, I mean, look, I think, I think as we said before, the Knicks seem to be prepared to be bad and it seems like a team that's well suited to be very bad and very young. So they'll be, uh, they'll be interesting to watch. I think from, from, from the, the standpoint, they've got guys like Porzingis and Nilakina and some of these young guys that they can play, uh, Willie Hernan Gomez and, uh, Ennis Kanner is going to be a fun presence to have around the team and they're going to lose a million games. So, uh, you know, then hopefully for from a Knicks fan standpoint, then next summer or next spring you can get some luck in the lottery and get a Luka Doncic or a Marvin Bagley or a Michael Porter, and then all of a sudden you got him and Porzingis and you're off to the races. So, um, you know, that that's, I think, the uh, the best way to look at the season, and, and you know, we'll see if it, if it works out. But, Jared, uh, thank you for your time. I appreciate you doing this again after, uh, you know, Carmelo kind of threw our things up, threw our plans <laughs> up in the air. Uh, before you go, though, just let people know where they can find your work and follow you on social media. And if, uh, you know, if you got anything coming the next day or two, you want people to check out. Yeah. Um, thank you for having me, first of all. And um, I appreciate it. You can find me on Twitter at JADubin5. And all of my work comes out there. I'm at Vice. I'm at Fansided. I'm at a bunch of other places. have some other stuff in the works as well. I did the Locked on Knicks podcast to talk about this Carmelo trade also. I uh, was a guest on my former hosting gig. That was an interesting experience. <laughs> um, and uh, got some other stuff in the works as well that uh, I'll talk about in the next few weeks. Yeah, be sure to be sure to check Jared's stuff out. It's great. Nobody knows the next better. So thanks, uh, thanks for doing this, man, and I'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. All right, Jess, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. It's good to have you on the podcast. Um, It's going to be a really interesting season for the Sixers. I think one of the teams people are most excited to watch between uh, hopefully a healthy Joel Embiid, uh, what should be a healthy Ben Simmons, and Markel Fultz. Uh, You know, signing J.J. Redick, a bunch of young players, uh, Dara Saric back. I mean, it it should be a really fun season in in Philadelphia, but I think the, the main person everybody is focused on, uh, as you might expect, is Joel Embiid, um, who was really a revelation last year and went healthy. He was probably one of the 30 best players in the league, but only played 30 games, and that's the number of games he's played in his entire career through three years. So um, I guess a double-barrel question to start with, how many games do you think Embiid realistically will play, and do you think that he'll be able to come to an agreement on an extension with the Sixers before the season starts and the, the deadline passes? Yeah, these are two great questions, and they are questions that are certainly at the forefront of a lot of fans' minds in Philadelphia. For Embiid, if we have to play the prediction game, I'm going to put him around 55 games, and that is compared to 31 last year. That's a big increase. That's taking into consideration the fact that the Sixers do have 
14 sets of back-to-back games. Last year, he was held out of playing both both of those consecutive games. And you also have to think about the fact that how many players in the league actually play 80 games? How many players in the league play 70 games? Rest is becoming so you know, so critical for these players and especially when he's coming off of injury. So I would put it somewhere around 55. And if it's, you know, somewhere in the 50s, I I think that's a good improvement for him. In terms of a contract extension, if I'm the Sixers, now I know that's a lot of money that they would have to invest in a player where there's still so many question marks around him. But if I'm the Sixers, I, I would go forward with that. And this is something that both you and I have talked about before, where do you give him the the full max contract you do a percentage of it and it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out they're going to have training camp to to see how he's looking and as of right now he's still not doing five on five so there's so many question marks involving how much do you give this player do you invest in him long term but if the Sixers don't give him this money right now and sign him to an extension regardless of how many games he plays there's going to be a lot of suitors if he does hit the market yeah, I mean, I think if he gets to 55 games, I think the Sixers would be thrilled. I mean, like you said, he, he hasn't even started running yet. Uh, training, we're recording this before of the week before training camp starts, but um, you know, training camp starts Monday. He hasn't started really working out yet. He's not gonna. Um, he's clearly not going to be ready by Monday. Um, so I think if he if he gets to if he almost doubles his games from last year, even if he does sit out all the half, uh, you know, one half of every back to back, because I think we both expect him to. I think that's a huge win for them. Um, and, and to me, I just don't see how a contract extension is going to happen. Um, unless Joel is willing to take a pretty significant discount, which it doesn't seem like he's willing to, um, understandably, given his talent level, um, then I think if you're the Sixers, you just wait. It's not like he's going to be an unrestricted free agent. If he is healthy next year, then he'll earn a max contract, which they'll gladly give him. And if he's not healthy next year, then they can see what the market is and, and make a determination then. But it, it, it's just hard unless Joel gives them a real discount for security now, which, like I said, it doesn't seem like from what he said, that's what he wants to do. Um, I just don't see how the money works to, to bring him back. At least I shouldn't say bring him back to, to sign him to a, to a long-term extension now and, and, to, and when there's so much risk on their end. Yeah, and the Sixers the whole time, I mean, their mentality has been, since Colangelo's been in the front office, is they're not going to rush into anything. They've been very methodical, and the same goes for not rushing into throwing a max contract at a free agent and, and signing guys for the sake of having salary cap space. So they're looking really far down the road. They're not looking at, like, what can we do in, in July, August, September? So if they did not sign him to a contract extension, you know, you raise a good point. They don't have to do that right now. They're not rushing into things uh, on really on any front. Yeah, no, which is a which is a nice position to be in. And, and they, they also want to use cap space next summer. Like you said, uh, you know, they signed uh, JJ Redick to a one year deal to kind of help create max cap space next summer. So, you know, I think they really don't. You know, unless they unless they get an offer that that is under Joel's cap hold, which is going to be pretty high. Um, you know, it, it doesn't really make sense for them to even do it that way because they that'll it'll save them some money to wait. So um, that that just seems like the most likely thing. Now, I know today, uh, you know, like I said, recording this uh, before training camp starts today, uh, Brett Brown and Brian Clinton were talking and, um, you know, they lavish a lot of praise on Ben Simmons. Uh, Brett Brown reiterated he's going to be their point guard, at least, you know, in, in, when they're in half court sets. Um, he's going to guard power forwards. He even said that they're going to you know, focus on having a lot of shooters around him, which I think is a really interesting development. Um, you know, Simmons, Simmons in particular, I think is going to be a really interesting, um, really interesting player this season to watch. What, what do you think, uh, assuming he's healthy, which they've said there's no restrictions on him, which is great. 
Um, what do you think his year is going to look like and how good do you think he can be right out of the box? Right out of the gate, I mean, we've seen so many guys that are so eager to play. Ben Simmons injured his foot on the last day of training camp, so he has been waiting almost 12 months to get back on the court. He is a player who, regardless of whether or not he's on the Sixers, around the league, I'm so intrigued to see. Because here you have a number one pick. So there's like this level of interest right there. Now you have a number one pick coming off of a year of injury, and he's going to be in this really unique, funky position of being a six foot ten point guard, as you mentioned, but then also defending fours. There's going to be so much, I, I think, and I just think it's natural, an adjustment period for him. Look, if he gets right out there and excels at everything that's being thrown at him, great. I hope that fans are patient with Ben Simmons just because it, it's such a unique role for him. And there's so many, there's so many new things being thrown at him as I covered, you know, just the injuries and the playing out of position and how are his teammates going to play around him. But his athleticism that we saw when he was healthy in summer league, that athleticism is so special. And that court vision, regardless of whether or not you're healthy, your court vision doesn't leave you. I've almost wondered, is he going to be a Rajon Rondo type player? This, but obviously bigger but speedy, athletic, defensively savvy, you know, can get to the rim, can mix things up, can can steal and run the break, but not the best shooter. And that's why you would surround him with shooters. What I would hope for Ben Simmons is that he does not focus too much on becoming a shooter. That is, that is his critique. You know, that was a knock on him coming out of college was his offense. And in this day and age with social media and these young players, they see everything, they hear everything. And He was posting a few Instagram posts and things like that over the summer about improving his shot. I just hope that he doesn't let that get to him, the expectations to become a shooter instantly. That doesn't have to be his role. That's why the Sixers went out. They got Markel Fultz who can play off the ball. They got J.J. Redick. They have other guys who can knock down those shots. If he focuses on his strengths from the very beginning, I think he can be very special this season. Yeah, I mean, he his shot is something he needs to work on. They've they've said all the right things. I mean, I, I but that that is something he really didn't shoot. He said he didn't shoot in college because he didn't have to, which he he really didn't to a degree. But for him to become a complete player, he's going to have to get better for there. And the other thing he's got to do is maximize his athletic gifts on defense. That's something he really didn't do in college at all. Um, even in summer league last year, uh, before he got hurt, you saw flashes of him doing more defensively than he ever did at LSU. Um, So I I think the potential is clearly there, but you know, again, we have to see, we have to see him actually do that. But there's, like you said, when you look at his skill set as a 6'10 athletic guy who can do all the things he can do on the court, there's clearly reason why people are very excited about his potential. Yeah. And like I said, it's going to be an adjustment period for so many reasons. And it goes not just for Ben Simmons, but it goes for the entire Sixers team. and, And we may get to that, but you know, if they are going to take that next step, it, there will be some bumps along the way. So I just hope that people that are expecting this overnight improvement, it's not going to be instant. That's just not the way the NBA works. There's too much competition of, of people and teams that are already established, but it can get there. Yeah, no question about it. And, and another guy who's gotten a lot of interest is, you know, a guy for a lot of listeners in the D.C. area that matters to them is Markel Fultz, the, the, this year's number one overall pick. Sixers traded up to get him. Uh, I thought that was a great move. He's the best player in the draft. He's a perfect fit as a guy who could play either guard spot, play next to Simmons. Not a great shooter, but definitely a better one. Should be, like you said, should be able to play off the ball. Um, you know, it's it sounds like the the starting lineup as of now is going to be um, 
going to be him, Redick, uh, Robert Covington, Ben Simmons, and, and Embiid, assuming everybody's healthy. Um, what do you think the expectations are for, for Fultz as he, he comes in as a rookie? He, he was the best fit for the Sixers, and that trade absolutely made sense for them. They had the assets that they could part ways with, being those, uh, you know, being having a handful of first-round picks available that they could give to the Celtics. He's, his role will be to compliment Simmons when they are playing together, and it's going to be key for these two young players to grow together. It's unusual to have your, your backcourt be so young and be so inexperienced, but in a sense, it's almost good that they can go through this together. They can learn together and go through these adjustments. I think that will strengthen their chemistry and their bond. And then the Sixers also did a good job of bringing in veterans that Fultz can learn from, so they already have... Jared Bayless, who's kind of like the forgotten veteran on the team because he barely played last season, he already had been forming a relationship with Ben Simmons during their rehab last year. And then we cannot talk about how invaluable the presence of J.J. Redick is going to be for a Markel Fultz. I mean, that is just huge to have this guy around all the time who's been in the league, being a knockdown shooter, that he can learn from. Fultz will be asked to do a few different things, and he gives the team the flexibility that, let's say, Simmons does not play in, in every game or there's you know doesn't play in back-to-backs. You have Fultz that you can then slide into the one spot. So his role will be a versatile one, but the biggest asset that he brings to the Sixers is being able to play off the ball. Right, exactly. I mean, like you said, you said it best. He, he was the perfect fit for them in this draft, and I, I just I love the move for them. They have a ton of picks. They needed a guy to fit their system. I thought he was the best player in the draft. I saw him in person last year. I thought he was a tremendous player. He, he showed he was good uh, at the beginning of summer league before he, before he got hurt and uh, had to sit for a bit. But I, I'm really excited about his future in the league, and it, it, you know, it's another reason to be excited about this team. One guy, one young guy who uh, has not had such a good start to his career is Jaleel Okafor, who I, I thought it was interesting. Brett Brown uh, today, again, we're doing this a few days for training camp starts, so I uh, know it'll be a little late at that point. But Brett Brown basically said, yeah, we're going to look around and see what we can get for Okafor. <laughs> I mean, just kind of uh, summing up what's been a, a pretty rough situation for him, really, from the moment he got to Philadelphia. Um, do you think there's any chance that he ends the season with the Sixers and um, is there any chance also that he is able to salvage things there and become, you know, more than a bit player that's fighting for, for backup minutes or to, to play a little bit when, when, when uh, Joel Embiid does sit out? I would be surprised if he finishes the season on the Sixers. I mean, this, this should really come as no surprise. This has been an ongoing situation. When the Sixers were unable to trade him last season, I remember he was being benched and held out of road trips and it seemed like it was going to happen. Yep. Brian Colangelo was very transparent after the fact and said, we're going to look to, we're going to look to see what's out there. And then that was reiterated again at the start of the season. I spoke to Jaleel Okafor over the season, saw him in person at a few different Sixers events. He is down 20 pounds from what his weight was at the start of last training camp, which was 278. He's down to 258. He's gone mostly vegan. He considers his cheat days to be when he eats fish. I mean, he's really dedicated himself to improving his body and his strength and conditioning, which will be key. Whether or not that's key on the Sixers remains to be seen. I don't see how he can have a significant role on the team. I mean, his his biggest role right now is being a backup when Joel Embiid sits. But how many times a game will, how many times a season will that happen? That remains to be seen. And also, too, if you keep putting Okafor in those situations, you're stunting the development of Rashawn Holmes. And this is a player who I have been, you know, advocating and, and speaking very highly of for the last two seasons. At some point, Rashawn just can't be that guy that you just kind of sit on the bench or send down to Delaware and he's cool with it. Like, 
Rashawn has earned an opportunity to have more of a role. So if you have Okafor starting just because Brett Brown has said he, you know, he's a starting caliber player, that's unfair to the development of Rashawn Holmes. And that doesn't help the team if Rashawn's the guy that you move forward with. So what I think, you know, what I, I what I could see happening is remember last season, all of a sudden out of the blue in late October, the Sixers traded Jeremy Grant yep. for Ursan Ilyasova. And it was so early in the season. We're all like, what? They made a trade already? I think if Okafor has a strong training camp, which the Sixers and Okafor are probably hoping for, maybe that's something that could happen where you just take care of the situation right at the start of the season. Because look, it's an awkward situation. It's really not fair to, to Okafor. I mean, the NBA isn't about being fair or not, but this is not a team where he's going to have a major role and thrive. And the Sixers know that. And Colangelo has said, you know, they're looking for a situation that's beneficial for the team and for the player. And if they can find that early on in training camp, if he comes out, looks healthy, if his knee is better and has a strong camp, strong early in the season, maybe we could see a trade like that happen early on. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. And to me, I, you know, I, I think probably the best case scenario for him in Philadelphia is that if Embiid is limited or does remain injured or gets injured again, which, I mean, let's be honest, as, much, as fun as he is, that's definitely a real possibility. You know, he, he'll have opportunities probably to, you know, kind of reestablish himself as a, as a fit for them. And if he plays really well, then things maybe will change. But, um, but yeah, like you said, Rashawn Holmes is a guy that people are really intrigued by, me included. I mean, he's a super athletic guy. He's shown a bit of a jump shot. He can jump out of the gym. He can block shots. I mean, he, he's a guy that looks like he could be a modern, a uh, real fit in the modern game. And, and Okafer is more of a throwback guy. And um, it, it, it will be really interesting to see, you know, even if MB does sit uh, for, you know, whether via injury or, or just to rest uh, to, to keep him healthy, um, how that does impact the, the way those two guys go at it for minutes. And, you know, I think even Brett said today that, you know, that's going to be a situation where those guys are both going to have the ability to fight for minutes. And, you know, Okafer, you know, isn't even going to have a backup spot guaranteed to him that he, if he wants to play, he's going to have to earn them over a guy like Rashawn Holmes. And, you know, that, you know, the, you know, the fact that he, as you said, is in better shape going into training camp. I, it sounds like that's a realization on his part that he really needs to try to you know, make an impression if he wants to either play more in Philly or to, you know, probably ideally for him, get moved somewhere else to get a chance to start fresh somewhere else. Yeah, there are teams that could use Okafor. It's just the Sixers are not the team. And this all goes back to like just this the circumstances surrounding all of their draft picks and what what the state of the team is like a few years ago, like the the fact that Okafor ended up being their pick and, and how it all happened with Embiid and Okafor. Now they're just in a different chapter. And the, you know, guys that were on the on the team from let's, you know, let's call it the process era may not fit moving forward. Yeah, no. And that, and that gets to, you know, the, the last question for me, which is that, you know, the, the Sixers, you know, have been a team that people are really optimistic about going into this season. Um, they're, you know, a team that's uh, projected to, to make the playoffs, to win 42 games. Uh, and to me, this feels very premature. Um, we have no idea how healthy Joel Embiid is going to be. We haven't seen Ben Simmons or Marco Fultz play a game yet. Um, they obviously still have the Oakford situation to deal with. They've got all these new pieces, all these young guys. Um, it, it just feels like people are very excited about the potential for this team. And they look at a, a fairly weak, you know, bottom half of these conference and say, yeah, these guys are going to win 45 games and, and make the playoffs. And I, I just don't, to me, I just think that's a bridge too far. And I, I feel like from, some of the comments you made earlier uh, about, you know, people needing to give these guys some time that you might agree that, that maybe there's a, 
because people are excited about uh, the potential for this group, that maybe there is a little bit of a rush to crown them as a team that's you know going to immediately be on the rise before they've they've really done anything to do it. I think the Sixers can make the playoffs. I do. All things considered, I think the Sixers could make the playoffs. I put them at the seventh seed. I put Charlotte actually at six ahead of them. But they have the pieces. And when you look at the potential of the Sixers, I always go back to that month of January. That that month of January when they went 10 and 5 last season was really like the first chance that everybody got to see what this team could do if healthy, what Brett Brown could do if he had an actual team instead of a revolving door of 6,000 point guards and random players playing out of position. He finally had a team to coach. So based on that 10 and 5 month of January, I don't think that finishing slightly over above 500 or at 500 is outlandish. It's a big it's a big improvement from 28 wins, but also too you look at the East and you don't have to be a 500 team to make the playoffs. And that's kind of just like the the state of the league right now. There are going to be a lot of teams that you look on paper and say, "Wow, like they're actually vying for the playoffs." And I think that's that's what we we saw last season too. I don't really expect that to change. Now, in terms of what they can do if they make the playoffs, I mean, look, they're very much in the infant stages of their progression and they're, you know, the team's realistic with that. But I got to tell you, like, I'm already hearing people saying, well, when can we predict them to make the Eastern Conference finals? And that's that's what's really interesting is hearing the fan base so excited for not just this season, but they're already projecting like there's some people with the mindset saying, when are they going to meet the Eastern Conference Finals? Because the Sixers are projected to be on the rise when the Cavs, and if LeBron leaves, like people are seeing the downfall of the Cavs before it's even happening. So the expectations are very, very high for the Sixers. If you look at their schedule, though, the first half of the season is so stacked with the Western Conference. They play the Warriors something like twice in eight days. They could get off to a slow start. With all the things we were talking about, the injuries and players coming back and rookie debuts, the schedule lightens up a lot in the second half of the season. It's very Eastern Conference heavy, and that's when they could make a push for the playoffs. But the first half of the season might not start off as smoothly if people are thinking playoffs all the way. Yeah, it just feels like they're a year away from doing that. Like They, they take this year, you know, hope, hopefully Embiid gets healthy and, and you know, Simmons plays a full year and Fultz plays a full year, and they... They, you know, they they take steps forward, and then next year they can really make a jump. And look, I think I think it's safe to say that the the, the one thing there that could really change things is if Embiid is healthy and and plays fifty five, you know, somewhere between fifty and sixty games. I think if he if he does that and is as good as he was last year, then I think they have the potential to to get somewhere near that forty one win total. If he plays less than fifty games, though, it's just hard for me to see how this team is going to win that many games. I I just think it's too there's too you're asking too much of too many young inexperienced guys I think at that point um, to really make that kind of a jump. Yeah, if you look at the Sixers this season, I mean I think there should be a huge asterisk next to their name when doing any type of projection and I feel like I write it all the time and like every article I'm right I write if healthy depends on health depends right. on minute restrictions right. and availability and even trades like let's say they do trade Okafor or even a trade you know can shake up a team and it could take them four or five games to get back on pace. So there are so many things that can happen in a season. But yes, if healthy, I think the Sixers can make the playoffs. If not healthy, if Embiid is sidelined for an extended period of time, that totally changes how it looks. 
Yeah, no, totally. I mean, if healthy is probably replaced, trust the process is the, uh, the, the real mantra for the team. That is never going to be replaced. <laughs> I hear not... like, trust the, I hear like trust the process chance, like just like randomly on the street. I mean, it, it's that, that is like the official unofficial slogan of the city. <laughs> well, and certainly, uh, certainly with, uh, with Joel trumpeting it all the time, that, that definitely isn't going to change. So, uh, Jess, thanks for, thanks for the time with this. I appreciate it. Um, but before you go, uh, just tell the people where they can find you on uh, on on Twitter, and it, you know, give us anything you've got coming up here as we get underway. Sure. Well, all of the all of my work is on csnphilly.com, and my Twitter handle is jcamerado.csn. Also on Instagram, you can check out the Instagram stories and any photos at jcamerado. So there'll be lots coming up from uh, Sixers Media Day training camp. I'll be there for everything. So anything you want to know about minute restrictions, back to backs. What, uh, you know, what Jaleel Lokafor is eating these days, check it out. Yeah, Jess is a great file. You should definitely check it out. So thanks, uh, thanks again for the time, Jess, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. All right, Blake, thanks for coming on. Um, let's just get right into this. Uh, uh, Raptors, you know, took a bit of a step back last year to make these conference finals, lost the second round to the, the Cavs again, um, you know, in a much less competitive series, but uh, it's been an interesting summer. Saw uh, Patrick Patterson leave, uh, saw Damari Carroll get traded, saw Corey Joseph get traded for CJ Miles. A lot of stuff happened. Um, that I, I, to me, the, the, the most interesting thing about this Raptors team is, is DeMar DeRozan has taken a step forward every season. Um, the last few years, he went from a guy that signed a four-year, $40 million extension, uh, and people questioned whether that was worth it to a guy that, you know, deservedly got a $140 million contract a year ago. Um, do you think he still has another step to take, or have we finally seen him kind of max out uh, far beyond what I think a lot of people thought he was going to get to? Man, I am done betting against DeMar DeRozan getting better. <laughs> it's it's just, it's one of those things, it's just going to happen, and, and like, some of, some of the years he's come back and it's been a little more subtle. Like last year, you know, the footwork was insane. He shot almost 40, 47% overall. Um, and you saw kind of some of the long twos he'd been derided for became shorter twos, you know, in that kind of 8 to 12 foot range. And some of those became shots at the rim. Um, and, and then obviously he uses all that to get to the line better than almost anyone. Um, it's, it's these small kind of subtle tweaks to his game. I, I do think, you know, we've, Everyone's talked about it for years. The next step for him um, and, and the most important one from the team perspective would be if he can knock down the three-point shot consistently. And he shot 40% on a small volume of corner threes, but the offense is not designed where DeRozan's going to be in the corner very often. So it's kind of those above-the-break threes that need to improve. Uh, you'd think that the way he shoots in the on long twos, which is hovers somewhere around the 40% mark year to year, uh, he should be able to step it out. Uh, but there's also the fact that you know when most of your shots – most of the mid-range shots you take are designed to avoid contact and avoid a close defender. Um, maybe there's some difficulty translating the the form from twos to threes. Um, and it's also been, you know, eight years and it hasn't come. So um, the other thing would obviously be defense. And he's shown very brief flashes of being a better defender. Part of that is workload. You know, he takes plays 36 minutes a game using 30% of their offensive possessions. Um, but either adding the three or, or becoming even a passable defender consistently would be huge for this team. Um, not because DeMar necessarily needs to get better, but in terms of the way you're building and the way you want to play, you know, he's, he's an immensely talented player, but he's almost the stylistic bottleneck 
that they have right now in terms of this culture reset that they're talking about on both ends of the floor. So um, I, I do think he'll come back and there will be something new in his bag of tricks. Not ready to say, you know, he's going to be a 35% three-point shooter or an average defender, but there's, there's always something. Well, it's it's funny. It's funny. You look at a lot of these guys that are that are kind of mid range specialists, right? Whether it's it's uh, Demar or Dwayne Wade or Demar's idol, Kobe Bryant. Like all those guys were excellent shooters from fifteen to twenty feet, and for whatever reason, they go back a couple, you know, another step or two, and they just never really uh, were able to figure it out um, for whatever reason. And maybe, like you said, maybe Demar. Uh, you know, I know Demar's. You know, talked about. I think whether him or his trainers talked this summer that he's gonna. Um, you know, take that step forward. I mean, that's 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 kind of like guys saying they're going to be in the best shape of their life, or uh, yeah. or uh, gain a bunch of weight, right? You gain a bunch of muscle going into training camp. Everybody always talks about shooting more threes, but uh, yeah, if he does that, I mean, that that's really kind of the last. Even the defense thing, like that'd be nice. But really, for him, like if he could ever get to being a, a league average or better three point shooter, I mean, that that you really he'd become a pretty unguardable player on offense. Yeah, and it's just going to open up so much for everyone else, too, where, you know, Kyle Lowry is a very good pick-and-roll player. Um, If he could have DeMar to kick it out to, that would be, I mean, that'd be huge for what their starting lineup and their closing lineups can do offensively. Um, And even with bench groups, you know, Norman Powell's going to get a lot of time, probably alongside DeRozan and alongside Lowry. Um, And if he, you know, he's another guy who is a really good straight-line attacker, but the defense is known to collapse a little bit. Um, and him and DeMar, you know, haven't, aren't the most seamless offensive pairing on paper. So if DeRozan can add that, uh, especially the above the break one, it opens up a lot for what the non-DeRozan Raptors can do when the ball's not in his hands. Well, and that's a good segue, Blake. Uh, I, wanted, I wanted to ask you about, about Kyle, uh, both, both Kyle and Serge Ibaka coming back on three-year deals. Um, you know, going into the summer, you know, it was kind of interesting, you know, I, I think Kyle and Serge both were kind of uh, emblematic of where the league is going. Um, those are two guys that you would have thought a year ago would have been looking at, you know, far bigger contracts, um, even though both got way more money than either of us will ever make. You know, <laughs> Kyle, Kyle, I know, thought he was going to get a five-year max. Instead, he got, or at least a four-year max. He said he got three for 100. Um, Serge, I think, got three for 60 or 65. Yeah. Um so, you know, both those guys, I think, expected probably to get a significant amount more money than that. Um, but given, given where Toronto was, do you think that, uh, that bringing those guys back was the right move and kind of keeping this core together? And do you think that those prices were good for, uh, for Toronto to, to, get, to get them both back on a contract? Yeah, I do think it was the right move. And I know that there are, are segments of fans who are championship robust. And I totally understand, understood that, you know, entering the offseason – the Raptors had kind of appeared to, you know, hit the wall a couple times and this group maybe couldn't push forward. So blowing it up would have made sense. The The fact that six or seven teams are also doing the same, it's kind of a tough race to the bottom. And I'm not sure the Raptors could have got bad enough quick enough. Um, but I understood that perspective. Personally, I thought, especially once it came down that these guys might be open to three-year deals, extending this window, which has been the best four-year run in franchise history, um, extending that a little bit, even if it's not a championship caliber um, um, core, you know, when you look back in six or seven years in a row, the Raptors have been in the playoffs and occasionally made the second or third round and won 45 to 55 games. Those things are important from a franchise equity standpoint. I think it would have been really tough for the Raptors to have the best run in franchise history, um, gain, you know, kind of more of the the market attention here, and then go completely backwards. And, and 
I'm sure Masai Ujiri didn't think this way, but I, I would bet that there are some people who, you know, the Toronto Maple Leafs are about to get really, really good again. And we already see that the schedule came out the other day and 41 of the Raptors games are on secondary channels that most people don't have in their basic cable package. So, um, you know, there's the risk of losing attention and losing your grasp in the marketplace a little bit too. Uh, but strictly from a basketball perspective, being good is good. It's, you know, if you look at the league and you see the Warriors the way they are, uh, one more year at least with LeBron and Cleveland, um, and then you see at the teams that are coming a little further down the line, whether the Giannis core um, can be built around Milwaukee to make them a contender, Boston now looks set up for kind of the 2018 and beyond window, depending on how they use the rest of their assets. Um, and then, you know, Philly, if everything breaks right, there's never going to be a time where there's not teams in your way. So if you can get to this point, rather than kicking it down the line and just hoping to get back to this point again. Um, I get it. Lowry, if you had told me Lowry would sign any three-year deal, I would have been game for it. Uh, Abaka's probably a little overpriced at 60 or 63, whatever he ended up getting. Um, you know, I, I sure, I would have loved for that number to be a little less, and that would have made adding to this core uh, a little easier over the next two years. But I don't think either of those are bad contracts. And really, a guy like Lowry, who is you know, a top 15, maybe top 20 player if you factor in um, some of the injury trouble in the NBA to get him on a three-year slightly sub max is it, it's tough to it's tough to not do that if he's willing to sign. Well, and, and it's funny, you know, I, I'm from Western New York originally, so I, I mean, I have a decent handle on the Toronto market, but I, I think a lot of people don't necessarily realize that the Raptors have been very fortunate and that not only have they finally broken through and had this run, like you said, it is by far the best four years of franchise history. Um, they also did it when the Leafs were awful. And, right. and it was it was a pretty nice convergence of events for them because anybody who's ever been anywhere near Toronto knows that if the Leafs are ever even remotely good, the, Leafs, the best comparison for people that don't follow hockey is Leafs or the Knicks. And they basically have not won a championship in the same amount of time and they dominate the league in a similar fashion too. And now the Leafs have a bunch of young talent. Uh, they, they're finally look like they're going to be a really good team. And, you know, if, if they, you know, if they start going into Stanley cup runs in the spring, you know, that that's going to make the, the Raptors, you know, it's going to take a huge hit out of them. So, yeah, I think I'm with you. I, I think the people, you know, I, I understand the championship robust people also, but I, I think you need to factor in a lot more things than that when you're looking at, uh, you know, where a team is at. And I think, you know, like you said, keeping both of those guys uh, on, you know, especially Kyle, getting him on, on less than the max for even three years, I think is definitely a win. Yeah. And to be clear, you know, the Raptors fan base is awesome. And the Air Canada Center is one of the best arenas yeah, in the for, league sure. for crowd noise for and sure. stuff. Um, it's not that I think Raptors fans would start tuning out. Um, but, you know, some of those people who are more casual and maybe split their viewing attention across the teams in the winter. And the bigger thing is, from a media perspective, right? Um, you know, the TV and radio coverage and stuff like that, there's a, you know, you need to keep growing basketball here. And there's a bit of a chicken or the egg thing where Canadian basketball fans have been told, you know, basketball isn't a priority in the past. Um, so I, I don't know. Um, I, I get it from a lot of fronts why they wanted to keep it together. Um, there are complicating factors, of course, and, you know, they, they're probably not a championship team, but there's a, there's a lot more good here than bad, I think. Yeah, for sure. And it is, it is fascinating. Like I, I've been in, uh, I've been in Toronto plenty and it, it is amazing how hard it could be to find NBA games on, on TV. So, I mean, to your point about how half the games are on secondary channels, I mean, that's, you know, that, that's all the more reason that if you do have a good thing, you might as well, we'll keep rolling it out there now. Yeah. And, no, and like, I, 
I think I, I was looking at cable packages yesterday just to see, and I think to get all 82 Raptors games, you have to spend at least 60 bucks a month on your cable package. Oof. Yeah, that's that's uh, you know that's that's not an insignificant amount of money. You know? Yeah, well, the, and the team the team's owned by the two you know TV corporations, so it's perhaps not surprising, I guess. <laughs> perhaps, right? <laughs> um, all right, so you know, yes, the the Raptors brought back Kyle and Serge, uh, but they also Got rid of a bunch of guys. Got rid of Corey Joseph. Got rid of Damari Carroll. Um, got rid of. Didn't bring back Patrick Patterson. Didn't bring back PJ Tucker, even though they tried to. Um, and in their stead, they're going to be relying on a lot of young players. You know, Dellen Wright, Fred VanVleet, uh, Norm Powell, uh, Pascal Siakam, uh, Jakob Pertl. Um, I, I probably forgot one or two. I mean, they, they're they're clearly you know going to try to throw a lot of these young guys they've drafted the last couple of years out there into key roles. Um, do you, I mean, I understand part of that was a financial thing that you only have so many dollars to spread around. Um, but do you, do you think that was a risk that, um, they had to take and either way, do you think it's one that will work out for them? Yeah, I think it's something that they, they more or less had to do. And you could kind of see it coming over the last couple of years when the back half of the roster, not the back two or three spots, but the back half was consistently, um, given to young guys. And, and, you know, last year, I think they had seven guys on their rookie deals this year, they'll have. Um, nine guys on their on their first contract, depending on who makes the team. So you could kind of see this coming a little bit. They put a big emphasis on player development with the 905 and some other stuff they're doing on that side. Um, and, and, you know, Masai Ujiri has been pretty open that in the new CBA, you know, you, you the league's always going to be a way where you need stars, but you're going to have to build that back end yourself, uh, especially if you're a team like Toronto that is not in a spot where it makes sense to spend deep, deep into the tax. And this year, I mean, even they were handcuffed by by the hard cap. So they, it's not like they could have added. They were in on Dante Cunningham, um, Shams Trania r- reported the other day when he signed. Uh, but otherwise, you know, this is fully young outside of the the top three or, or unless you count Jonas Valanciunas as a, as a veteran at this point. Um, there's definitely risk there. And it kind of cuts both ways in that there's a lot of risk because if these guys don't take the next step or they're not ready um, or, you know, forbid Kyle Lowry or DeMar DeRozan get hurt, there's not a clear, you know, there's no safety net there. There's not a Damari Carroll who might be underwhelming, but you know you can throw in there. There's not a James Johnson break glass in case of emergency guy. Um, but on the other side, you know, they may have looked at this and figured this was the only way to build some upside into being this second-tier team, too, where if Norman Powell really hits in a much larger role for the first time. If DeLon Wright is as good a backup point guard as I think he he has the potential to be. Um, and, and, you know, Siakam's a guy that they're really high on. I'm not sure exactly where he fits out of the gate, but long-term, they like the way he's developed. Um, so it was a necessary bet, but they also, you know, it, it's kind of, they have the confidence in their player development side. And, and we're going to see a lot about how that's, how that's gone this year. It's it's one of those things where you you... Young guys can look as intriguing as they want in, in 10 or 12 minutes here and there, but a team's never really going to know what they have until they're in a situation like this. Um, yeah, you'd like to have more variance uh, in, in terms of the, the risk profile, that it's not all on young guys, but they've got you know seven or eight guys that could contribute, and if two or three of those guys are really good in their roles, they'll probably be okay. Norman Powell, I think, is going to be, you know, whether he starts or comes off the bench as their sixth man, he's going to bump up to like 30 minutes a game. I think he's going to be really solid. And, and I think people haven't seen a lot of DeLon Wright because he didn't play as a rookie and he was injured a lot last year. Um, but he's really solid too. So um, a lot of risk there, but I, I think they'll they'll probably mostly be okay barring an injury to one of their two top guys. Yeah. I mean, it, it's uh, it is really going to be interesting to see how it plays out. And, and you know, like you said, 
the Raptors, you consistently look at their roster and, you know, they'd have all these guys like DeRozan and Lowry and, and Blatley Surge and Jonas Valanciunas, who we'll get to in a minute, who are all kind of in the prime of their careers. And then they'd have, you know, Bruno and Bebe uh, Nagara and, you know, Norman, all these guys that were from anywhere from 20 to 23. And like you said, you could kind of see it coming. Um, and it will be really interesting to see see those guys roll over because you don't usually have a team like this that's been a contender that just says, all right, well, our, basically our entire bench is going to be, you know, rookie contract guys. And it, it will be it, – it's going to be really interesting to see uh, how those guys shake out. It's a big bet on, on Masai's drafting paying off for them. Yeah, for sure. And, and it's going to be interesting too, especially in camp, there's going to be a lot of internal competition where DeLon Wright's the backup, but Fred Van Vliet, you know, pushed him at times late last year. That could be a, a battle. If you're, you know, obviously they're going to run a three-wing rotation with DeRozan, Powell, and Miles in some form. But if you're looking for a fourth wing, um, Alfonso McKinney and KJ McDaniels are both on partial guarantees. And Bruno Caboclo um, isn't expected to see much, if any, time in the G League this year. So um, there's a competition there. Jakob Pertl and Lucas Noguero will be back battling for the backup center spot. Um, so from an intrigue standpoint, it's certainly going to make the the abbreviated preseason interesting. Yeah, which, for you know, anytime the preseason can have interesting storylines, I'm thankful. <laughs> well, thank, I mean, thank, that's one, I mean, thank God the preseason is shorter. I mean, it should be, I think, two games, but I mean, four is fine. I mean, anything better than these, you know, six or seven or eight preseason games in the past. I mean, it's just unbelievably stupid. So yeah. <laughs> that was, a, that was one of the best things that came out of the schedule changes. So, all right, well, I, I mentioned them before, but uh, to me, Jonas Valanciunas is one of the more fascinating players in the league now because, you know, it was only, I guess, you know, maybe a year or two ago that he signed this four-year, $64 million extension. That At the time, people said, wow, that's a pretty good contract. I mean, here's a guy, it's a young, young starting center, um, pretty good scorer, good rebounder, not a great defensive player, but, you know, a young guy is getting better and, and pretty mobile. And like, hey, you know, it's a pretty decent contract as the cap is going up. Now you get to this summer and it feels like you couldn't have traded Jonas Valanciunas if you wanted to. Um, and now it's a situation where is, is he better coming off the bench for the Raptors, behind, you know, having surge start at center. Uh, it, it's just, to me, the entire kind of uh, uh, phylum of player like him, whether it's Greg Monroe or Ennis Canner or, you know, go around the league, a lot of guys like these offense first big men that aren't really rim protectors, um, even though they're talented players, their stock has just fallen dramatically. So I guess that's a roundabout way of getting to where do you see him fitting in now moving forward and what if any what what are if any ways can he um can he change his game to allow him to be you know not become a dinosaur in the league that just doesn't really fit with the way the modern game is going yeah in terms of where he fits I mean I think we know at this point the last four years his numbers and and role across the board have kind of been remarkably consistent he's um I personally I think he's going to start and it's not necessarily uh what's the best lineup thing but during the regular season, you're maximizing for 82 games in 48 minutes. The Raptors have Serge Ibaka at power forward, and then it's kind of question marks like Pascal Siakam, small lineups, um, whether one of those tryout guys cracks the roster. At center, they have Jonas Valanciunas, Jakob Pertl, and Lucas Noguera, who have all shown at least flashes of being reasonable uh, rotation players. So if you're building the team for the whole season, you know if you start Ibaka you've got then four centers and almost nothing at the forward position. So I think Valanciunas will start. That'll be a different discussion come playoff time, depending on who the opponent is, where it might make sense to drop him into a a Monroe or Cantor role. Uh, But I think it's going to look pretty similar. I think, you know, I think as part of the Raptors, as as they talk once again about, 
you know, moving the ball more on offense. Um, post-ups for Jonas Valanciunas are not helpful to that end. He has a high turnover rate on those. His efficiency in the post has gone down a little bit. But he is one of the best scorers on the roll in the NBA. And that's a, that's somewhere um, Lowry uses him a little bit. DeRozan doesn't really find him on the roll that much. Um, he'll probably see a little more or he should see more touches as the roll man. Um, I don't know if his usage is going to spike too much. You know, it's peaked at 21% in his career. I think that's 21, 22% is probably the high watermark. And even then, that's if he's helping prop up some bench units um, with a with a quick sub out in the first and third quarter. Um, so I think his role will be pretty similar. You know, he's, he's a very good rebounder. He's an elite screen setter, which is of incredible importance to the way this team runs their offense. Um, you know, I think he's consistently among the leaders in screen assists and, and total screens. So he does... It's been weird all offseason where the fact that Valanciunas' contract now doesn't look as good and that the Raptors shopped him has kind of, you know, all the focus has been on what Valanciunas doesn't do well and where he doesn't fit in the modern NBA and how he's not, he's maybe not the best fit with Ibaka. Uh, but he's also pretty good in his role. And the people who want his role to grow might be disappointed and the people who don't want him, you know, who think he's a bad fit might be disappointed. But he's probably going to once again be pretty good in something similar to the same role. Um, if there were an area for him to improve, it's on the defensive end. He looked pretty lean at Eurobasket and fairly fleet of foot. He had a solid tournament there. Um, but I don't know. You know, he's not suddenly going to become a, a two block a game rim protector, I don't think. It's more a matter of him improving his awareness, which I think is kind of the... Um, the limiting factor for him on that end, as much as his quickness, is kind of reading and situationally. Um, so I, I don't, I don't think he'll take a big step forward. I, I'd like to hope he does, but I think he's going to be pretty similar to the guy you've seen the last couple years. Um, and you know, he's probably not going to close games for them again. Well, and it is funny too. Like you mentioned, you mentioned his usage rate. I mean, he's always felt like a guy that was kind of miscast on a team with two ball dominant guards that didn't right. really get him the ball, right? And and so, like, that that's the one thing he really does well is he can score fairly efficiently for you. And if, if he's on a team with Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan, uh, even that skill is kind of negated a bit, which, you know, which makes him, you know, his other flaws really stand out even more. Right, yeah. If he were in a different situation where, you know, the team lacked a scoring punch, you, you know, you look at kind of the role Brooke Lopez played with the very bad Brooklyn Nets teams the last couple of years, um, Valanciunas would have way more offensive value in a situation like that. Um, but you know, with the trade not there, the, I don't think the Raptors are, well, they're clearly at this point, not willing to reshape things around him. Um, so it's kind of just about getting him to be the best possible him in this role. Um, I know he'd probably tell you he wants to shoot some threes this year after he finally hit one last year. Uh, I don't think that'll happen much other than him just being the trailer in transition. Um, uh, but you know, similar to how we talked about with DeRozan, if he can come back and make a few marginal subtle improvements, uh, and those guys make a more active attempt to look for him on the roll and, and Lithuania actually ran some cool stuff uh in Eurobasket where they'd set like baseline screens to get him they're I guess they're post-ups but they're kind of like flash cuts into really deep post position right um the Raptors have done some stuff like that before they've occasionally run split cuts over top of them if they do post them up there are a few little tweaks like that that you know I'll be looking out for in the preseason to see if they're trying to add a little bit more um for him uh but you know we we've had the same conversation each of the last couple preseason podcasts. Right, right. So, yeah, exactly. I mean, it does kind of feel like a broken record at this point. And then, uh, kind of along those lines, um, you know, we've alluded to a little bit, but do you do you think this group has another gear left in it, or do you think that um, it's kind of already reached the high water mark for what it's going to be when it made the conference finals? You know, uh, you know last season. 
Yeah, if I'm being, you know, in, in the most likely scenarios, uh, maybe they could repeat that. You know, like Boston is a better team on paper and they'll probably be a better regular season team. Come playoff series, if some of the Raptors' young guys improve, you know, maybe that's a conversation come playoff time. And if the seeds work out right, they can be fighting their way back to the conference finals. Uh, but if you look at it, I don't think there's, you know, I don't think they're getting past Cleveland this year, barring a, a LeBron injury, which absolutely no one wants to see. Um, and then you look ahead. Boston's kind of built for 2018 to 20. You have a couple other teams coming up. Uh, if LeBron goes west, you know, maybe the back end of this three-year window that Toronto's created, maybe a couple of the young guys hit, they can add via the, the mini mid-level or, or via trade in the offseason, and, and the east is a little bit more open. Um, but even then, you know, then the upside's going to the NBA Finals and almost definitely losing to a west team. Um, so they're probably they're probably close. I don't want to say they've reached the entire peak just because, you know, things can break right for you sometimes. Uh, and the way the seeds might work out, I think they'll be gunning for the one seed just so they're in a position where if things shake out, they don't have to run into Cleveland in the in the second round. Whether or not they can do that, I'm I'm unsure, but they might get back to where they were. I don't think they're going to push much further. This isn't a, you know, to, to some of this team isn't going to win a championship, I don't think. Yeah, it's hard to see. It's hard to see that happening unless they, you know, they make some kind of a, a trade or uh, or Bruno finally blows up and becomes the player that he uh he was rumored to be when he was drafted, which I also yes. don't expect. Uh, all right. I, I do not expect Bruno to be uh, Brazilian Kevin Durant. No. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't expect that either. That it is funny how that that Fran Fraschilla quote about him two years away <laughs> from being two years away was is really has really become one of the defining quotes, not just about him, but just in general. Like I, you couldn't have. There's been few predictions that were more spot on than that. Yeah, and it, what's what's interesting about it is that it was always kind of meant to be a four year experiment, and I think. If they had it back, you know, ideally the 905 would have been in place a year earlier because he kind of just like follow, like he kind of just watched for his rookie year. Um, it was basically a redshirt year other than a couple games in Fort Wayne. Um, and I know that at the time they kicked around maybe having him play overseas for a year, but they wanted to be they wanted to be responsible for his development. Um, I don't know. I still think it was a, a like what? How often does a 15th man play and factor in? It's been a an, it's been an interesting experiment. Uh, at, at the end of the G League season last year, his defense actually looked like fairly legit. Like he's seven feet tall now and he has this enormous wingspan uh, and he's getting smarter with, you know, help defense and, and rotations and things like that. The offensive game isn't much, but I don't know, man, he's still seven foot and 21 years old and it, it made sense. It, it's, <laughs> I don't know, man. It's It's been so fun and interesting and such a unique uh, like basketball development thing that you're such a Canadian, Blake. I'm being polite, too polite. <laughs> yes, this is this is one of the most Canadian moments I've had in a while. Um, but uh, listen, man, I appreciate the time. I know you got to run. Uh, just just give the people uh, where they can find your excellent work and uh, anything else you got going before you bounce. Yeah, you can find me at Raptors Republic. That's where most of my stuff is. Uh, the Athletic and Vice Canada a little bit. Some other places pop up. Um, but at Blake Murphy ODC on Twitter and, and everything goes up there. All right, awesome. Thanks, uh, thanks a lot for the time, man. Really appreciate it. Tim, thanks for having me on, man. All right, thanks in order to Jay King, Sarah Kustak, Jared Dubin, Jess Camarado, and Blake Murphy. All five of them are friends of mine. Really appreciate them coming on. I hope you guys enjoyed it. It was, a, I think, a fun listen. Um, be sure to check out the podcast wherever you can find it, uh, iTunes, Stitcher, uh, wherever else. Give us a five-star rating and review. It really helps a lot. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, at Tim Bontemps, on Facebook, at Tim Bontemps NBA. 
Um, you can find me at work in the pages of the Washington Post, milwashingtonpost.com. Um, thank you to Glenn Yoder in the Western States for the theme music for the podcast. It's, ter- it's terrific. Uh, everybody I talk to likes it. Give those, go find their work on the internet, purchase it, uh, support those guys. See them in concert. They're great. Um, got a lot of fun stuff, I think, coming the next few weeks here at the Washington Post to get you ready for the NBA season. I got a bunch of projects I'm working on. Uh, got some other, you know, co-op stuff we're doing. Uh, the top 100 will come out in a couple weeks. We'll be back with, the uh, the artist renderings we had last year that people loved. So, uh, it should be, should be some really good stuff. I think that you guys will enjoy it. I'll be back Friday with the Central Division preview podcast, and there's a chance there could be another one this week, depending on how things go. Um, might get into some of these moves that have happened with Carmelo and Dwayne Wade and everything. So uh, there'll definitely be at least one Friday, though. So until then, hope you all uh, hope you all do well, and thank you for listening. We'll talk to you again soon.